What's up, pop people? You are listening to Real Lit. Books, booze, and B-movies with your favorite tipsy cuties. My name is Sam. Usually it's all the time while we are intoxicated, but I just yep. so happen to not be drinking today. I'm drinking uh, the Budweiser Zero. This is the, the non-alcoholic beer, which it tastes like a Budweiser. I'm, it's That's pretty, weird. It's pretty impressive that it tastes pretty much like I'm drinking a beer, but there's no alcohol in it whatsoever. I'm weirded out that their Zero is non-alcoholic rather than just no calories right like zero carb or something yeah mm-hmm. whatever yeah good for it's them 50 calorie it's also zero sugar so there is that also is that that's the most so beer that's for when you're on a diet you yeah. still need the for alcoholics who still need the taste of beer but don't want to drink the beer honestly 10 out of 10 because we have a variety we've had a variety of these in our house for the last couple months We've had the Lagunitas one. We've had a uh, Heineken. Heineken's pretty good, the, the non-alcoholic Heineken one. But this one is by far the best. The Lagunitas one is shit, just FYI. It does not taste good. It does not taste, A, like beer, but also B, just good. It's not a pleasant experience. Yeah. The so, so far, this is the winner of the three. And I'm not drinking so today, today because past Katie made mistakes at the grocery store and did not buy any mixers so no either I drink straight vodka which is a horrible plan or I drink nothing at all (laughs) absolutely not yeah I imagine that's like something Ted Bundy would do is have just a full glass of straight vodka um and that's how he gets intoxicated versus any number of normal ways people would drink their alcohol yeah the most today I'm very I'm so excited so I talked briefly uh in a different episode I say briefly I probably went on a long diatribe but how I tried to cover last of the Mohicans and then I uh could not do it because I just didn't want to for a variety of reasons, but the majority of the reason why I didn't want to was because I hate it. I really hate <laughs> James Fenimore Cooper and in particular, The Last of the Mohicans. Um, they're, they um, bother me um, considerably, even though they are definitely pieces of classic literature. So I like just skipped it <laughs> and did other stuff. So I've I figured out a way to get back to the like the genre that I wanted to cover when I was going to cover Jason Moore Cooper, which was early American literature, rather than cover James Fenimore Cooper. Why did this take me forever to figure this out? This is what I'll cover instead. And to be fair, this is a lesser known classic, but it is definitely still considered, in my opinion, at least a classic. I say that. Uh, I mean, I wrote my senior thesis on this. My my seminar was on early American literature, my senior seminar. And so I wrote my senior thesis on this book. Um, and it is by far, in my opinion, superior in every way, shape or form to the majority of early American literature. This is Hope Leslie or Early Times in the Massachusetts by Catherine Maria Sedgwick. As I mentioned, this is early American lit. I really literally chose this as a foil 
for the whole idea of what early American literature is usually, um, the James Fenimore Cooper, Last of the Mohicans kind of style. Um, in particular, it's usually stories that are super offensive in a variety of ways, not the least of which is, you know, normal sort of African, I, I hate the word normal, but the the more notable African-American slavery that lots of Americans know is a, a thing that happened in our history and is a problem. But we also know this aspect as well in terms of our racist history, but we don't focus on it nearly enough, A, and our early American literature is actually rife with it. Um, and it's really, really like bad. And that's Native American uh, racism, Native American, uh, the conquests of their people, the battles that we had with them, and just the way we treated them then and have treated them ever since, to be completely honest, honestly, as a nation just completely decimated them in every way, shape, and form, and for no reasons, for reasons that just are bullshit, uh, <laughs> to put it yeah. bluntly. <clears throat> the United States... So is garbage yes <laughs> and has a long history of just fucking over everyone like it's not mm -hmm. like we fucked over black people we fucked over native american people we fucked over the irish and the chinese in building our railroad mm -hmm. system we like it's Japanese. just like how can we exploit the most people, people. <laughs> how can we yes. exploit the most people while spending the least amount of money and that's why our infrastructure is crumbling horribly right now mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. When we think about early american literature we think of stories that there are native american characters or, and stories present but they're often told through white people lenses yep. um they're often told very derogatorily the the you know the stories and the characters uh, um are very offensively sort of drawn or painted um or depicted and uh it is really particularly for that reason that I, I have a very hard time reading a lot of classic literature, you know, because it's just so prevalent and it's so upsetting to read. Yeah. If you're someone who, who can read it and can see just how awful and pervasive it is and reading it and knowing as you're reading this, like, Oh my God, pretty much everyone thought like this. Yeah, like the majority of people thought like this and it's horrendous. It's similar. It's, just so hard. it's similar, not quite the same, but very similar to the outrage that many of you, I'm sure, felt in watching, if you watched it, the Lone Ranger reboot movie that happened yes. a handful of years ago with Johnny Depp and Army Hammer, where yes. Johnny Depp played a Native American character, which is first off, like number one, that's offensive as fuck because Johnny Depp yeah, is white. We're not Native American, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then the character itself from the Lone Ranger was Depp was a Native American character as told through a white lens, and he was very offensive from bottom to top. Like yeah. every aspect of that character in the Open Lone Ranger is offensive. So when they chose to do a Lone Ranger reboot, they 
opted to put that character in but probably should have opted to take him out like there should have there could have been so many different ways that they could have done it and it could have reinvented the story and made it better and made it like a statement piece almost to be anti what it used to be and instead they just they just leaned just followed the story so what it was and there's something to be said in that instance for like oh you got to just stick to the original story yeah okay but sometimes the original stories are really fucking racist or really just bad defensive in every way shape or form and you know what no we don't just have to stick to the story and if we don't it's it's a bad remake like there's something to be said for remaking stories and not erasing the shittiness that they were and that's not the point the point isn't to erase it the point is to remake it remake it I say that like that's not the exact thing that we're talking about but like kill it so that you can reboot like a phoenix you know what I'm saying yeah like, like a rebirth of you know what this was a great story there's a reason people liked it but the particulars of the original story were so racist or so offensive in some other regard that it's not justice to retell them with all those aspects. Let's cut those aspects out because they don't deserve our time and our energy. And let's keep the essence of the story, which is what people loved about it, and and revamp it and give it new life in a way that is not racist or not offensive, uh, you know, or problematic. And yeah. yeah, you're always gonna get the people who are fucking racists that are pissed off, but who fucking cares what they think because they're goddamn racists like yeah. i'm so sorry cry me a fucking river that you're really upset that we didn't stick to the details of the story yeah we didn't because the details were fucking racist so i'm i don't care i'm sorry if you care what that tells me is that you've got some racism that you need to fucking deal with yeah <laughs> basically the answer to that question whether you want to hear it or not if you're pissed off because they cut out some racist details of a original story to remake it yeah you're pissed off because they cut racist shit out listen to that hear that fucking statement and think about that because yeah. the problem here is not us trying to cut racist shit out what that movie really needed was first off a native american actor in the role and then as that character is dealing with all of these racist pieces of shit he needs to be calling them out on all of it or just murdering just them like that's that's the that's what needs to happen yes <laughs> like How i'm not to take the racist shit completely out but you need to give the person address it dealing yeah it needs to be addressed in the film I'm gonna have stab be, you. Exactly. Have it be said, and then right after it's said, have our Native American person be a fucking badass, and then look back over to that person like, "Sorry, you were saying." Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. You know, moments like that are how you take those offensive, problematic stories and you address them. Make sure you're not erasing the fact that that shit did exist, but you are saying you're making a statement that yes that did exist and we know better now we know that this is fucked up and not okay now yeah you know there's a difference between completely erasing it and trying to pretend it doesn't exist and addressing it and having aspects of it but having it ethically in the stories that you're portraying yeah so yeah native american literature basically 
um, or I shouldn't say Native American literature because it's not, it's most often written by white people and it has Native American people or stories or, you know, or characters depicted in them, but it's problematic. It's just problematic for a variety of reasons. And when you think about things like this, you think of this is the reason why we got the story of Pocahontas, um, right? Which is a story that came from early American literature and it's based in historical fact, right? Um, it, I say based, <laughs> the, the actual story that we know of as Pocahontas now is very bastardized from what the actual historical events were. Um, that inspired that story. But even in early American literature, that story in particular, the idea of Pocahontas and the idea of Native Americans having redeeming qualities, uh, uh, eye roll, is something that even writers back then in early America making these stories didn't agree on or sometimes um, wanted to kind of interpret in different ways. There were conversations that were happening historically about whether or not we were being absolutely awful people to the Native Americans or whether or not the Native Americans quote unquote deserved how we were treating them. It's just not something that we talk about now. And I, I don't really know why, but I do know that it is there. In particular, when I took early American literature as an undergrad, I took it, we, it's part of our requirements. Uh, so I took it once and had to read this book then. And then I took my senior seminar with the same instructor. So it was an early American literature focus as well. So I got to then reuse this story as um, for my seminar focus. And it definitely stands out hopelessly uh, or early times in the Massachusetts, usually we call it Hope Leslie, by Catherine Maria Sedgwick is a very standout story because it definitely pushes against the normal vibe of trying to depict Native Americans as brute savages or, oh, maybe there's great aspects to them, but they're fundamentally flawed. And that's why we white men have to come and save their poor souls and or save their civilizations because they are in decay. Mm. And this novel stands out as basically the opposite of that. Now, there have been critics that have tried to say about this novel that no, um, Sedgwick isn't being subversive. She's actually just reinforcing some of these racist stereotypes, but um, they're few and far between. And not to toot my own horn or anything, but my whole senior thesis was about taking those critics and what they were saying and going like, fuck you, that's not what she's saying at all. Um, <laughs> she's saying literally the exact opposite of that. And here's all the reasons why. It's, it's just a great story. And the problem with art. <laughs> the yeah. problem with art yeah. being subjective is there's no like you can't definitively say one way or the other unless you are the specific author or artist or musician who made that work you can't legitimately right. say this is exactly what it's about because every person who reads it is going to take it some other direction sure a couple things there is yeah for sure and then there are some um, aspects of lit crit that branch off into very specific genres. Like I'll just touch on this briefly before I start in here. 
Um, so like one of the avenues is of course, death of the author. So the idea that it doesn't matter what the author actually intended, what matters is the implication or the impact that it has after the fact, the intention is almost a non-factor in that sort of area of lit crit. It's a great area of lit crit. It's very interesting. Um, I think sometimes you can apply it, you can misapply it, but there's something to be said there for sure. But then there are other avenues of, okay, yes, it is very subjective. And sure, you unless you have the author staring you in the face and saying to yourself, saying to them, no, this is what I meant, which you just can't get for early American or, you know, older stories because they're dead right yeah. they can't stare you in the face and tell you now technically there is always a level of subjectivity there but also no and this is a little bit of um like a misconception when it comes to lit crit in terms of the idea of interpretation like is there a wrong way to interpret a story uh, the the short answer is yes and no um because no of course you can interpret a story however you want however it's going to depend on how, what it is you're basing your interpretation on. Because if I read, for instance, Cinderella, and I think, uh, well, my interpretation is that Cinderella is actually an alien from outer space. And uh, I base that interpretation on, because I think it would be really fucking funny if it was, if she was an alien from outer space. And if you think about it, meh, 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 meh. You're having fun and that's great. And I'm super happy for you. There's nothing wrong with that, but your interpretation is not very valid there, right? Because absolutely not. There's no fucking way that the brothers Grimm were sitting there thinking to themselves, you know what we're gonna do? We're gonna take this folk tale and we're gonna make Cinderella an alien. Like, so there's, there are lines that definitely can be crossed in terms of the like, all interpretations are okay to have. You can have your interpretation, but the validity of your interpretation is going to rely on a couple things. Yeah. And so if, if your interpretation is relying on stuff that primarily comes from the text itself and you're not sort of mishandling that information or mishandling the, the historical information that you can get, like from the, the life of the author and you, know, and you learn about them and you learn about the things that they said and the things that they believed, all of that, very valid things that you can put into your interpretation versus if you're just taking something completely out of left field, ignoring everything else contrary to that fact and you know, going, nope, this is the correct interpretation and you can't tell me that I'm wrong because all interpretations are valid. Mm, no, not exactly how this works. <laughs> With that said, however, the people, the, the people who are critics about Hope Leslie definitely were taking some of their cues from the story for sure. But a lot of the times they would essentially ignore the majority of everything else going on in the story and almost sort of reach out into what other people do in the genre to say like, no, everyone else does this because it, and because it's such a normal trope, this is clearly what this scene means or this moment means in the story. And that's, that's a, it's a stupid thing to do because Catherine Maria Sedgwick will learn about her as I talk about this uh, story. And then eventually when I talk about her as a person, Catherine Maria Sedgwick was a very um, notable uh, woman for a variety of reasons. And she had very clear documented beliefs and ideas to say that in any way, shape or form, she did not actually want to be 
putting a spin on the quote unquote Native American character that was more positive than negative to try and say that no, what she was trying to do was actually reinforce racial barriers is just completely tone deaf to literally everything about her as a person that we know historically as fact, as well as the actual story itself. Yeah. Without further ado, God, I'm so excited. This is literally, and every time I read this story, I get excited in the same way that like, I used to get excited when I would watch Pocahontas. And it's hard to watch Pocahontas for me now because I love Pocahontas. Um, It's one of my favorite like Disney stories, but especially knowing what the, the original story was based off of, first of all, but then also knowing that there are other stories out there that are A, worse, and then also B, better like this. Like you can see, sorry, the listeners can't see, but you can see how dirty my book is. And that's because I, I've reread this story over and over and over and over again. Like, it's just so good. This is Hope Leslie or Early Time in the Massachusetts by Catherine Maria Sedgwick. It was written in 1827 um, and it is a historical romance. It's set within the like 1630s to 1650s area, somewhere around there. Um, In particular, most of the later stuff that happens in it, it's about 1640-ish. There are actually a number of historical figures that appear in here. So as I say them, in particular, the Puritan leader, John Winthrop, is actually a big character, as well as the uh, Pequot Native American Mononoto, pretty important characters. So we start this story, first of all, Catherine Maria Sedgwick gives a preface to her story. And I'm just going to read a little bit of it here, um, a very short amount, because it it really does set the tone. This is the end of it. And it's talking essentially very briefly about one of the Native American characters that you're going to meet in Majawiska. The writer is aware that it may be thought that the character of Majawiska has no prototype among the Aborigines of this country without citing Pocahontas or any other individual as authority. It may be sufficient to remark that in such delineations, we are confined not to the actual, but the possible. The liberal philanthropist will not be offended by a representation which supposes that the elements of virtue and intellect are not withheld from any branch of the human family. And the enlightened and accurate observer of human nature will admit that the difference of character among the various races of the earth arises mainly from difference of condition. These volumes are so far from being intended as a substitute for genuine history that the ambition of the writer would be fully gratified if by this work, any of our young countrymen should be stimulated to investigate the early history of their native land. Very explicitly kind of saying here that So people talk about my interpretation, quote unquote, or my depiction here of the Native American characters as unrealistic, essentially. And she's basically throwing up the middle finger back at them and saying like, fuck you, essentially, that how dare you say it's unrealistic just because you have not heard, quote unquote, of someone who is a Native American who is like this doesn't mean that they don't exist. And that, I mean, comes right out basically and says that like, Well, Native Americans are human beings, and unless we're going to come right out and say that there are some type of human beings that are just less than others, 
um, which I think is a very unchristian-like thing to do. <laughs> Native Americans are just as able to be dignified and have, you know, wonderful character as any other fucking race, particularly white men. And you know what? The majority of people just don't know what the actual true history is of this nation. And so if my story makes you wonder whether or not Native Americans like this, quote unquote, exist, fucking look it up. Because you're going to be fucking surprised, basically, when you start learning about what really happens in this country. And this is, like, I cannot stress this enough. She wrote this in, like, 1827. <laughs> so this is this is very significant in terms of a statement that she's kind of making right at the outset of her own book uh, that, you know, fuck you. This is a story that is not going to be all about the brute savages. This is going to be a story about characters. And yeah, some of those characters are Native American and they're still great characters. So go fuck yourselves. This story begins with a man named William Fletcher. This man is in love with his cousin, which was pretty normal back then. His cousin is named Alice. He does not live in North America right now. He actually lives in England. He's in love with his cousin. Poor guy. Her father has forbidden her to marry him, basically because they have religious differences. He definitely still wants to marry her, even though her father says no. Alice in fact, tries to run away with him to North America, but her father um, thwarts this effort and intervenes. Um, so Fletcher ends up not being able to do that with her. And Alice's father forces her to marry a person named Charles Leslie instead. So now William Fletcher is um, the love of his life ha has been forced to marry someone else and he is devastated. So he leaves England and he goes to Massachusetts Bay in North America. He marries a woman named Martha, um, even though he still very much is in love with Alice, starts his life. They have kids. Everell is his eldest, 14 years old at the kind of beginning of this story, just FYI. And he also has three other children. When he has been there for a while, he receives word that Charles and Alice, so Alice, the love of his life, basically, and her husband, they've both died. They had children. And so their children, later on, they will be renamed Faith and Hope. Um, in the beginning, that's not what their names are. They'll be baptized and get Christian names. Their children are going to come and live with the Fletchers because that was kind of like Alice's dying wish basically to like have Fletcher raise her kids essentially. William Fletcher is of course like well absolutely I'll do this. When Martha hears this his wife he's like yeah yeah I know we're gonna add we already have four kids <laughs> this is gonna add two more that's a lot of kids. Um, you know what we're going to increase our household work with all of these kids so let's get some servants in the house. So they take on two young Native Americans as servants. They are Majawiska, who is 15 years old, and her younger brother, Oneko. These two kids are the children of one of the Pequot Native American chiefs named Mononoto. The Pequot War of the previous year that we are currently in in the story there was a war that was going on uh, between this area in, the, in North America and the Pequots. What happened in this 
eventually is that the Pequot settlement is attacked and burned to the ground basically by white settlers. We have a lot of Native American, like younger children and other sort of displaced Native Americans who are now without homes and without sort of a people. It's, it's very sad. Sorry. Uh, got a little emotional there for a second, but it's, it's very sad. So Fletcher is like, well, we know that there are these Native American, essentially asylum seekers or um, refugees or prisoners, to be perfectly honest. Some of them are taken not by their own will. He's like, we're going to need help around the house with all this new work for these two extra kids anyway. And these people, you know, these Native American peoples that are now without homes and need places and need support, let's get two children to have as servants to help us around the house so we can kind of be charitable in that regard as well as, uh, you know, helping us with the work that we have. So in addition to this, around the town, there's also this older Native American um, woman. She's a healer. Her name is Nalima, um, and she's kind of important. We'll talk about her later. But um, she is also present kind of around as one of these kind of displaced Native Americans. Later on, uh, she and Majawiska kind of get along very well, but we'll talk about that. Fletcher essentially is like, okay, this is the plan. We are going to get these two Native American children um, for help around the house, and I'm going to go off to the coast. I have some business. I'm going to pick up the Leslie kids. While I'm gone, you'll get to Martha, his wife, uh, you'll get the Native American kids that'll come and begin helping you. And then when I get the Leslie kids, I will send them off because I will have to stay because I still have some work that I have to do at the coast. So he goes off to the coast to start doing some business that he has there and to meet up with the Leslie children. They arrive, their original names are Alice and Mary Leslie. Um, they are baptized to be Christian. So they are given new Christian names. Mary's name is now Faith. And the eldest is Hope Leslie. And she is 10 years old at this time. He, like, of course, this is kind of a hard experience for him because he loved their mom. <laughs> and um, in particular, Hope looks and reminds him a whole lot of Alice. And she was kind of her mom's namesake. So he kind of gets attached to Hope Leslie very quickly. And he sends Faith to his house, um, but he actually keeps Hope with him because he just is so kind of enamored with her um, and wants to kind of keep her close because he's sort of kind of trying to live vicariously and learning about his older love um, through her and kind of it fills him with joy to be around her. So while he's gone, um, we learned through a letter that the wife sends to him a lot of important things. First of all, that Majawiska and Everall are very close now. They're, they, they kind of hit it off, essentially. And for her, this is too close, right? Because, of course, she's a Native American, Majawiska, and her eldest son is not a Native American. And so she's kind of wondering at what's going on here and remember their ages too right uh Majewisk is 15 Everell is 14 so they are kind of right at that cusp of like teenage 
hormonal things going on and she's kind of expressing a little reserve there. Also, she mentions in this, um, Oneko and Faith actually are very close as well. That Faith is kind of um, a little bit of a really shy and sort of timid girl, but Oneko is the only one that she really kind of comes out of her shell around and he kind of delights her. And so they become very close as well. She has kind of these foreboding feelings that she puts out in this letter. And it's important because um, you'll kind of learn that her foreboding feelings are almost almost prescient here in this regard. After she sends this letter, um, Everill has a moment where, so in the house, they have a, a family servant named Digby. One night, they are kind of keeping watch around the house. Everill is getting older, so he's kind of learning sort of the like manly um, duties around the house, especially because his dad is not here. Um, Digby is kind of showing him some stuff. So he and Everill are keeping watch one night and they're doing this because one um, during the day, his mother actually finds this kind of very ominous, like Native American sort of token in front of the house that doesn't seem like it is happy, nice token that's being left. It seems kind of threatening. So when she found this, she actually kind of calls Majawiska in and asks Majawiska about it. And Majawiska just kind of views like, I don't fucking know what that is. I don't know why you're fucking asking me. I don't know anything about it. Basically, the mom is kind of like suspicious, but she doesn't get anything out of Majawiska. So she just kind of has to let it go. You know, she didn't like that this was kind of showed up on their doorstep basically out of nowhere. So Digby and Everill are kind of keeping watch that night to kind of keep the house safe. They see Majawiska slip out of her bedroom in the middle of the night and she goes off to speak to Nalima, the kind of older Native American woman of the area. Everill and Digby kind of argue here because Everill, of course, is, as we've understood now, clearly enamored with Majawiska. They're very close. He like loves her basically. So Digby is like, something not right. These very racistly going like, ah, these Native Americans, they're plotting something. And Everill is like, nah, old man, like you're fucking wrong. Majawiska would not be doing that. I'm sure there's like a perfectly fine explanation for this. When she comes back um, from the meeting, Everill kind of meets her because he's just so convinced that they're, that nothing untoward is happening here because he it's just not possible to him so he just kind of comes out and is like hey what's up and he notices right away that she's upset and he's like well what's wrong Majawiska and she like cries a little bit and he like sits with her it's very sweet rather than tell him kind of why she's crying they just kind of start talking to each other and she discusses with him the Pequod War, like what happened. And this is really important because Everill hearing this, he loves her uh, halfway kind of between how children love each other and kind of halfway between how teens love each other. And so he is hearing some of the really horrendous things that happened to her people by white people from her own mouth from her point of view and about how awful it was. And so this is important for him. It kind of helps shape for him the understanding of what really is happening with these sort of meetings, quote unquote meetings or wars or battles between his race and the Native Americans. 
we learn here, um, essentially in this story that Mononoto, who was her father, when he was, because he's, he's one of their chiefs, and in the war, he was actually deemed by his people often too sympathetic or lenient to their enemies. Towards the end of the conflict that she describes, he's deemed by his people a lot um, as almost culpable or guilty of some of the like intense suffering that they go through. That is important as we will learn for later on. As she's talking about this, like she tells him about like uh, she had an older brother. The white people essentially just murder him in cold blood um, is one of the stories that she tells here and it's just brutal. So they kind of just get lost in this discussion. And as they're talking and the way she's talking, Everell, he's not an idiot. He's starting getting some suspicions, but he doesn't want to believe them. So he just kind of puts them to the side and they sit and they talk for a while and they talk for so long, finally, that Digby kind of comes up and is like, okay, kids, it's time you guys got to go to bed. (laughs) Basically, like what Everell was supposed to have been doing was trying to figure out where she was and what she was doing. And that clearly did not happen. (laughs) They just got very sidetracked. So um, he kind of gets them up and sends the kids to bed. We get here one of the first instances of Majawiska's point of view in the narrative. She is very conflicted um, because we learn from Majawiska that her father is essentially preparing a surprise raid on the household to claim his children back from the white man. She is very conflicted right now because she is like, feels a very strong love for this family actually, in particular Everell, but the whole family, they have treated her with a lot of kindness. She um, has a lot of love for Martha Fletcher. And she, the longer she's been here, she feels like I don't want anything bad to happen to them. Like I want to go back to my people, of course, and I want to be with my father again, but I don't want them to get hurt by this. What has happened to my people is not this specific family's fault, right? And so she's having that weird conflict. She ultimately decides to not tell them anything, not even Everell. She's unwilling to betray her father. The Fletchers have been waiting now for a while. Mr. Fletcher, William Fletcher, is now finally coming back, bringing hope, Leslie, for the first time with him. We learn via, um, you know, post or whatever that he is hours away from being home. So the household gets all up in a tizzy, kind of prepping everything to be ready for him. Mrs. Fletcher actually sends Digby away on an errand. She is insistent like, oh, this needs to happen and it needs to happen right now. And Digby is like, no, ma'am, I shouldn't leave. You, If you guys are gonna be out here, out um, outside the actual home, I'm the only adult dude here. Like I shouldn't leave you guys alone. And she's like, you, that's nonsense. You're only gonna be gone for like a couple hours and Mr. Fletcher's going to be home soon. So it, it's not that big of a deal. And he is like, okay, well, and he turns to Everell and is like, Everell, if I'm going to be gone, you're the man of the house now. So make sure that, you know, that you are paying attention to all the things that I've been teaching you. And Everell's like, absolutely got it, sir. And so Digby goes off. Everyone is ready. Um, They kind of actually set themselves up like out almost in the front of the yard um, with all the kids and Majawiska 
at this moment is very obviously something is wrong with her. She's very nervous. She's very upset. And she's like, she's dropping hints so hard. You can see it. <laughs> the, the poor girl is trying everything that she possibly can short of actually saying something and betraying her dad. She's like, oh, I don't feel like we should be out here uh, so open. Oh, doesn't, I feel like I just heard something over there in the trees. Oh, it would be such a shame if, you know, we were attacked out here all alone. I would feel so scared. And like, and everyone's, it, it's so frustrating because you know what's coming and the reader is with Majewiska. We're just like, listen to her, go back into the house. The poor girl is trying so hard, but everyone is just kind of like, oh, Majewiska, you're being silly. Like you're in such a weird mood today. And she's just, the poor girl is just beside herself. Like, why, why is this happening to me? While this is a brief moment of reprieve of funny, it becomes not funny real quick. What doesn't make any sense to me, this is prevalent throughout literature. Like this happens all the time. Like, like it'll be fine. Let's go hang out outside. And then everybody like gets murdered. And mm -hmm. when this happens in stories, I'd probably venture to guess eight times out of 10, the man of the house is gone and he's returning. The woman of the house is like, it'll be fine. Like, how is it that women who have borne atrocities like rape and murder forever since the beginning yeah. of time, how are none of these women like on their guard at all times? You know, I think like, it is like just today's women, like today's women always have like almost everyone I know has like a sharp thing on their keys. Yeah. And sure. all women, at least in a, the United States, are very aware or relatively aware of their surroundings. Mm -hmm. It's like very evident when you're out running and someone else is running behind you, maybe running the same path. You get fucking paranoid and you turn down your music or you take off your headphones and you yeah. get 911 ready on your phone because you're not playing around. Like, like it's not a new thing. Like women being attacked is not a new thing. I don't understand how in this time period, the mom was just like, we'll be all right. Nothing bad <laughs> could happen. It's just, it's just me, an adult woman and like six kids. <laughs> so we'll be, many kids they're we'll so fucking fine nothing <laughs> bad could happen I don't so, I mean I'm, for sure and I think part of it is the cognitive dissonance and I don't think this is just a woman's thing I think in this specific thing in particular is a an entire human thing is yeah you know it but you don't ever fully believe it's going to happen to you until it does there is that this level of I know that that does happen but that won't ever happen to me I feel you know, like we've finally, we're right now, everyone is suspicious enough about everybody else that no, the, most people aren't like, that'll never happen to me. Because then you have to wonder of the, the, the problem of it, it finally, you're right, that we are in a situation now, we are in an incredibly paranoid state. Most of humanity, but in particular the US, yeah. lots of people don't trust anyone. And look where we are here true that mentality we don't I mean it's not good uh we are at record violent uh you know acts being produced 
by yeah. people who don't trust anyone who have, who are so paranoid and so convinced that another group of people or another, you know, type of person are going to hurt them, that, that people are becoming proactive and hurting them first. Yeah. And that's not good either. Right. That's fair. Um, okay. Let's so, go, let's go back 10 years. Let's say like 2011 is, was the peak was, that was the ideal. <laughs> like women were scared. And everyone else was just the right amount of scared of everybody else. (laughs) Well, I think you have to think of the the idea of like, technically speaking, the ideal society is we're not scared because that is an anomaly, right? What that's the ideal society. That's what we want, right? So it's, it's hard to kind of find the line of where do we go and what policies do we put in place to make a society where it's okay to not be worried and paranoid 24 seven, because we live in a society where the majority of people learn, you know, the majority of men learn, no, stop fucking treating women like this. No, you're not entitled to women. No, you know, women should not be targeted for X, Y, Z, right? As sad as it is, as sad as it is, I think we're still hundreds of years away from that. Absolutely. Just solely on the fact solely on the fact that we have thousands of years of evidence of men being horrible to women you can't just deny that those years and years and years and years and millennia of atrocities towards women have happened and people of color everybody else besides white men like all of these atrocities have been happening for thousands of years against everyone who's not a white man it will take a long time to unlearn that to the point where all of the minorities women included will feel safe all around regardless of the laws that end up being put in place that you know I mean there are laws against you know rape and murder and kidnapping all these things right now but it still fucking happens to the point that you know we're still discouraged from traveling alone and always encouraged to have pepper spray or like a sharp pointy object on our fucking keys or a rape whistle or whatever like Mm -hmm. I think it'll be a really really long time before we get to a point where everyone is comfortable enough like that I mean it would take a humongous paradigm cultural shift because currently the prevalent way to go about it is to lean one way or the other either victim blame essentially of like well, if you'd been in the house, you wouldn't have gotten murdered or whatever. Yeah. Versus we shouldn't feel afraid to be walking around and be doing normal fucking things. Yeah. Right. Lots of people understand that that is the goal, but they still don't cognitively and consciously understanding that is not the same as unconscious cultural discourse influencing your sort of implicit biases. And it's the implicit biases that will need to change. And that won't change until a huge cultural shift occurs where the majority of things that are being portrayed in the media, not just news, but also stories and other sorts of, um, you know, things that surround you um, that are proven to have, cult, you know, cultural influence on a person implicitly and creates those sort of biases and those schemas for yourself and your brain it will take a sort of huge cultural shift in that regard to where the majority of the things that we see actually treat the situation in that regard, treat it as no, the person is never at fault for living their life freely. It is always the perpetrator's fault 
no fucking regard for anything else that they were doing. It doesn't matter whether or not they were running around naked and, you know, with their middle fingers up in the air, they still don't deserve to get murdered or raped or whatever it is. Yeah. It will take a lot of stories and a lot of depictions and media taking that spin unapologetically and having it in a variety of different media and having it everywhere for a long period of time before that sort of cultural paradigm shift occurs. Oh yeah. We're very far away. Okay. Yeah. Majawiska is pretty much dropping hints left and right. Everyone is like, oh, you're so funny, Majawiska. And she's like, yeah, I fucking wish I was funny. I'm not being funny. And uh, it is not funny. And it is very not funny very quickly. Unfortunately, um, they do attack. The Native Americans suddenly attack them as they're out there waiting for William Fletcher. So when it happens, Everill um, actually does get a hold of one of the guns and he wounds one of them, but he's essentially just unable to stop what happens here. There's a lot of Native Americans and there is one adult and several children. I think there's like a servant girl that is around as well, but yeah, Majawiska essentially just immediately begins begging, please don't hurt them, leave them alone. Um, you can take us. They haven't hurt us. They've been nothing but kind to us. I love them. Please don't hurt them. Um, but it's just not, it's not good. Mrs. Fletcher and the young children are um, murdered. Even the baby Mononoto captures his children back. And he also captures Everill and Faith. So remember as Majawiska, who is 15 years old. So it's not like she's a super young child. And it's also his daughter, right? And his eldest child now, because he's lost his uh, elder son. She's, I mean, pleading with him. He's actually honestly being more lenient than he wants to be here because he is a little moved by it. Um, And so he doesn't kill Everill or Faith. He takes them prisoner because they are the favorites of his children rather than murdering them all. Because remember, he thinks he has to be making up to his people for being too lenient on his enemies in the past. They leave. Mr. Fletcher returns with Hope Leslie to his home several hours after this fight, obviously only to come and find nearly his entire family dead. The one lone servant escaped. She tells them what happens basically as as good as she can. She knows that they took Faith and that and took Everill. Fletcher mourns for a few days. He starts to begin. I mean, he has to conduct affairs. He has hope still as his child that he that is in his charge. So he's now trying to take care of her. He starts trying to kind of figure out what the new normal is there. How how old is Hope? Hope is 10. Okay. Meanwhile, when the Native Americans captured Everill and Faith. They're attempting to reach their allies. They're going to like an ally sort of headquarters, basically. And as they're traveling, right, they've, they're keeping Everill and Faith prisoners, essentially. Oneko is being very like fiercely protective of Faith. And to be fair, Faith is very young. So Hope is 10. And she's talked about like, she doesn't talk a whole lot, but she can give like complete sentences and stuff so this makes me think she's she's between five and seven five and eight probably somewhere in that range not super young but young enough that the native americans are not very scared of her (laughs) or anything so 
Oneko is pretty fiercely keep making sure that no one touches her, but that's not a big concern. The bigger concern is, of course, Everell, who is a 14-year-old young man. And so they are keeping a very close eye on him. And Madrawiska is, of course, very pissed at her father and is basically needling him in every way that she can to try and figure out, like, what the fuck is going on, basically. This is not the dad that she knows, essentially, is what she kind of reflects on in the narrative of who are you the father that I know would not be like this you're being cruel you're this is insane you're being insane right yeah, you killed a fucking baby and he's kind of like damn it shut up I'm trying to do the things I gotta do here you don't understand you're just a child Everly, he can't understand obviously specifically what's happening but he can get pretty much the gist of what's going on right and um he's obviously very depressed because he just watched his entire family die and now he is a prisoner and he's expecting to probably die he doesn't know yet whether or not that's the plan but things are not looking great she attempts to help Everell escape several times in the middle of the night like when things are going like when they're traveling um essentially she's just unable to do so something happens and it will you know trigger someone finding them out basically and the settlers by the way like digby and the the people of the town they're searching for the party and at one point they get like this really close call where everell can actually hear digby and the others like out in the trees and he's like, oh, they're right there. Like I could be saved right now and I can't, um, right? And so it's this kind of like cat and mouse awful game. Eventually they reach the ally settlement. They prepare Everell for sacrifice. Mononoto is, he's very impressed with Everell. Um, he kind of understands why his daughter has clearly like grown attached to him because he's very impressed by how hard he fought when they invaded the house. We've been dragging him through the wilderness and he hasn't lost his spirit this whole time. And he's not being what he would consider not brave. Like he's not begging for his life from me or anything like that. He is pretty much being stoic, taking it, right? And he appreciates that. So he thinks that this will be a very good sacrifice to avenge the death of his own son. That it is a very fitting um, figure to sort of mirror the death of his son because that's how he viewed his son a brave fierce warrior who was brutally murdered for you know in cold blood and he feels like Everell is almost kind of this very fitting sort of white man's echo of his son so he's planning to sacrifice him to kind of make a statement to his people I wasn't fierce enough in the past, but that's changed. And let this sacrifice please our people and please the, the goings on in the universe that we will have success in our battle now to you know get back what's rightfully ours and to avenge our people. I find it so interesting. The things that men find, I don't know, a cherishable quality in mm. a person, as yeah. opposed to, I'm not gonna generalize and say all women, but me at least, what I yeah. find sympathy for in a prisoner, not that I would ever keep a prisoner, but like, so he is saying he appreciates how stoic about and even natured about all of this that Everell is being. That's reason enough to give him a sacrifice, like be something fancy, essentially. Well, and it's essentially paying 
respect to Evril. Like, yeah, it would be to him more disrespectful to just kind of kill him outright without yeah. any sort of symbolic nature attached. That would be disrespectful to his, this kid's spirit. Yeah. See, for me, I don't find stoicism in a situation like this as a redeeming quality. I don't want to see someone beg, but like, that's what I would, it would be understandable. That's what I would sure. want. Honestly, like it would be very understandable. Absolutely. This happens all the time in movies, the badass, like gunslinger, gangster, whoever is just like getting tortured and is completely stone faced. And that's like supposed to make you like him sympathize with them. I am not sympathetic to the person for being stoic i'm more sympathetic to the character that pleads for his life i don't know i just find it so interesting that stoicism here is being praised oh well you had the guts not to break i guess so yeah i think i think it's that i think it's the idea of it would be easier and understandable to be petrified and beg for your life and no one would blame you there but the harder thing is to to hold that fear in. I mean, there's this kind of weird. I feel like men view the harder thing as holding it in. I view the harder thing for men to do to show their emotions. Yeah. It's, 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 it's a conundrum. It's a catch 22 that men make for themselves, by the way. Yeah. Um, It's not imposed on them by women. (laughs) I don't, I don't think holding in your emotions in that type of situation you're not being brave you're just upholding some garbage masculinity bullshit that has been forced upon you for centuries and like right no but like you're you about to die <laughs> right but show, then you have to think show of, your emotions yeah, that you actually give a fuck about your life like you have to think of that that's the culture that they've grown up in so yeah. for them it's almost it's almost impossible at least probably back then for any man, young or otherwise, in this situation to break out of that mold and yeah. to be someone who says like, oh, it's totally okay for me to try and beg for my life now. No, they're so surrounded by what we would consider toxic masculinity today, yeah. um, right? That it's almost unthinkable. Like that's not an option here yeah. for any man who is worth anything. Yeah, well, it's even, it's looked down upon still in media. I don't know. It's a fucking mess. So Everall is basically sentenced to be sacrificed. <sighs> Majewiska is upset with that decision, continues to try and convince him to not do that, but she's unsuccessful in convincing him. And he essentially has to remove her from he and Everall's presence by force, basically, because when she finds out that this is what he's planning and that's what they're going to prepare for, she's like, no, absolutely not. Um, so he has to essentially get her dragged away basically she you know fights very hard and eventually only stops fighting when Everell himself just kind of goes like it's okay it's okay you can go after death we will meet again by the way a huge statement to say um because that's not something that early puritans would believe um they don't believe that that a native american soul or any human soul will be saved in the afterlife unless you have been converted to christianity specifically and been baptized that's not a thing and And does her tribe even believe in i mean that type of heaven like (laughs) they have their they have their own beliefs for sure like they have the 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 idea of like the great mother or the great spirits 
Um, but they don't know they, they, she's absolutely not a Christian <laughs> and yeah. he, and Everell is a Christian. And he is very much saying here, like, that doesn't matter. We're going to the same place. I absolutely know that. So I'll see you again. Yeah. Um, which is just a huge statement. <laughs> she's sent off to this older woman's sort of house to kind of do womanly duties. She wouldn't be here otherwise they're they're just putting her somewhere to keep her out of the way basically but the way she fixes that is that at night she there's a guard stationed at the door to keep her in there she uses this sort of herbal sleeping tea that the old woman has in her hut that she's kind of using for like it's like a like a sick person hut I think they're tending to someone uh from what I remember and so she just uses that and just kind of like mixes it in his own like water pouch or something and he drinks it and she just puts the garden to sleep and is like all right we're in business and breaks out she goes to try and find out where he is to help and uh Everell meanwhile has been taken to um this sort of large rock that they've chosen to have as the sacrificial place he is at this point when he kind of finally learned he was going to die for a while he was very sad um, and he does does cry, but then he kind of almost reconciles himself to his fate and kind of makes peace with it and is like, okay, I'm ready, God, I will, I will see you now, basically. And so he kind of goes up to the rock and doesn't fight and he bows his head and he's ready to be killed. And at the very last moment, Mononoto um, swings up with his uh, weapon and Majawiska has come at the exact correct time. She leaps down from a large rock that overhangs them directly in front of Everell and puts her arm up to shield Everell. And so instead of killing Everell, Mononoto chops his own daughter's arm off. This is a huge shock. Everyone is incredibly surprised. Everell is basically like, and she is like, all right, you got to go. You got to run now, my man. Let's go. Come on. I just got my arm chopped off for you. And so he embraces her and runs away. And the Native Americans understand this moment as very, oh, shit. Well, this is clearly what was meant to happen. So we're not meant to have sacrificed him. This was pretty insane for her to have done and to have pulled off to have saved him in that moment so they kind of interpret this as a sign that was like oh all right he can go then we're gonna let him run away whatever what we thought was going to happen here that was not what was meant to happen Everall escapes that is the end of part one of this story and now we enter into part two the second half of the story that's insanity so, that that was just part one. Mm-hmm. It was originally published in two installments. I know that they killed the woman first because had they killed that baby before they killed the woman, she would have been filled with so much rage. She would have taken out that whole tribe. Oh, yeah. <laughs> also, I'm real nervous for Majawiska because um, flesh wounds in the <laughs> 1600s were uh, not something you need. It's not a good thing. It doesn't help anything. Yeah, for sure. Not a good thing. Not that they're great at any time, but they were especially not great back in the time where, you know, like modern medicine wasn't around for sure. Yeah, there's like no, there's nothing. Like two seconds in and it's just infected and 
everyone's right. dead <laughs> for sure mm-hmm. oh part two we are fast forwarding seven years this story begins we are reading a letter that hope leslie is writing to everill everill is in england there's a lot of shit that happens in this letter it's essentially a setting of the stage by sedgwick to where are we now after everill escaped it took them a while to find him he couldn't really lead anyone to where he'd been obviously because he was a traumatized 14 year old um malnourished and you know etc after he was found about two years after he leaves for england um it was his mom it was like one of the last things his mom had actually said to his dad um in the letter that she sent that that was what she wanted for him she wanted him to go to england for a couple years to kind of learn society and all of that hope is a very open-minded person very strange for her time and it's noted even in the narrative like we'll get there later but that she thinks about things in ways very clearly different than what is the normal way for Puritans to be thinking about stuff. She does not agree with a lot of the moral uh, viewpoints that the Puritans have on certain subjects. She just believes that there's a lot of pious bullshit basically that goes into the Puritan way of thinking that she just is not here for. Essentially, she thinks it's nonsense. And um, that's got God, that's bold for um, for uh, a person in her position to think. And you think now, okay, this is seven years. So if it's seven years, she was 10 when the happenings were happening. So she's 17 now. Everill was 14. So seven years added on to that is 21. In the, her letter, she tells this story. Essentially, she has a tutor. Her tutor's name is Old Man Craddock, Mr. Craddock, um, who's very, who's a very funny character, poor guy. Old Man Craddock, they were like taking a hike or something in some pretty historical place or whatever. He gets bitten by a snake on this hike. Hope Leslie is like, oh shit, I don't want my tutor to die basically. So she goes to Nalima, the old Native American woman that lives in the town that was present way back in the day. So Nalima is um, a healer, if we remember from then as well. She goes to Nalima and is basically like, yeah, the people trying to help my tutor, they're not doing anything for him. Can you help him? And Nalima is like, yeah, I can do that. When Hope brings Nalima, everyone is like, Hope, what the fuck were you thinking? This is unacceptable. This is what, I mean, what the Puritans would consider witchcraft, Satanism. But Hope is like, that's fucking nonsense because that's how Hope thinks. And she's like, I don't really care what the fuck it is as long as it works. So Nalima comes in and cures Craddock's snake bite. She, it's like, you know, some sort of salve that she has created. She does do a ritual, um, but it works and he is cured. However, unfortunately, the servant, there's a servant named Jeanette. This is the same servant that survived the Fletcher attack, by the way. And so she is very, very racist now in particular because of what she went through. She was racist back then too, but she's uber racist now. She is very much like, 
oh, hell no, this devil worshiping crazy lady came in and did some devil magic on our dude. We got to turn her in. At this point, historically speaking, the Winthrops are um, kind of in charge of the area. And uh, Puritanism is large and in charge in the 1640s. This is something that is not good. This could get you since death in the early colonies. She essentially turns Nalima in and Nalima is made to stand trial. While this is happening as well, William Fletcher, Mr. Fletcher, is very disturbed that Hope essentially has sympathies for Nalima here and doesn't really seem to understand or grasp that what she's done is wrong in his eyes. We're going to have to figure out how to punish you for this. Unfortunately, I don't want to. You're, you're, you know, you're a favorite of mine. I love you too much, but this was not okay. Maybe I can't teach you well enough or whatever. The trial happens. Hope is called as a witness, of course, and Hope is a smartass and makes her opinion quite clear. Funnily enough, Digby is also, who is also brought as a witness to this, he is pretty much in line with Hope here. Like, it's not that he's not racist because he is super racist for sure, but he has the instances of like the people that he knows are good people. So he knows Nalima. So he's like, this is fucking nonsense. Like Nalima's not a devil worshiper. Like she fucking healed the dude. Like who fucking cares? She goes to stay with the Winthrops in town for the trial. When the trial happens, they learn after it is over that she's sentenced to death. When Hope is at the Winthrops, she's like, nah, fuck this. So she watches where Governor Winthrop puts the key to like the prison basically and she watches that and takes note of it and then in the middle of the night what clearly happens is she breaks Nalima out of prison (laughs) but that's not what she says in the letter because obviously that would be her admitting to a crime so what she says is that yeah in the morning I woke up and we had heard that Nalima had escaped and it was just so weird but you can not only you can you tell that she very obviously set Nalima free but also you can tell that she intends for Everell to get that that she's writing this in a way that it's very obviously meant for Everell to read between the lines here so he probably is of like mind uh in this scenario right they feel the same way about these things the real thing was that happened and not what hope writes which is oh i just woke up and we heard that she was escaped so crazy was that hope and digby free nalima from prison digby kind of helps get her off when this happens nalima promises hope that because of this act that she's done for her she is going to do everything in her power to make sure that Hope sees her sister again someday. Faith. Hope is like, I mean, she's very hopeful, not to be punny, but also is kind of like, I don't really know if anything's going to come of that. And unfortunately now, as mentioned earlier, Hope has been clocked by the Puritans as not pious enough. So Fletcher doesn't really like this, but he doesn't really see that he has a choice and he's kind of been convinced out of his own sort of good sense that it's in the best interest of hope, she go and stay with the Winthrops in Boston for a while so that they can be more influential in her pious and Puritan training. A few months after this, 
Everill returns to America on the same boat as a man named Sir Philip Gardner. They essentially meet because they were obviously on the same boat. And as they're departing, they kind of get to talking. They've never met before this trip. And he is accompanied by a page boy that is some sort of ward to Sir Philip Gardner. This page boy's name is Rosalind. Everill is met by Hope and her friend named Esther Downing when he departs. And it's very cute. Um, it's pretty, pretty damn obvious from the get-go that Everill and Hope are very into each other. Pretty in love. Esther is the, the niece of the Winthrops. She's very pious. She's a very obvious foil to Hope. They're, they're sort of the opposites attract group of best friends. She is 19, very opposite of who Hope is. She's very reserved and very, um, you know, strict about being a good girl. So when Hope and Esther meet Everill, Esther is very struck. There's so much reaction from Esther that Hope is like, mm, something is going on here. Mm. And so when they go upstairs after they've um, come into the house, Hope is like, you gotta spill what is going on here? What did I just see? And Esther is like, well, I was in England, right? Because Esther is visiting her aunt and uncle. I actually met Everill when I was in England. I fell in love with Everill when we were over there. And he like, basically, it's such a cringe story, but essentially she's like written like love poems about him, like, and has them like in one of her books and like drops them. He essentially comes across them and like reads them. He doesn't respond in the way that she feels like means that he would feel the same way. So she essentially is like mortified and she's so mortified that she puts herself in a like depressed illness and is like on her deathbed about it. Mm. <laughs> and God damn it. She was so ill and Everill comes to her bedside when she's on her deathbed and is very kind to her. She recovers. And then after that, she goes to visit the Winthrops and she's like, and that's the last I saw of him. It's just a little, it's a little odd to see him again. The affairs here, Hope is like, oh, and she doesn't know how to feel about it. Like she knows on the surface how to feel about it because she is very unaware that she's like woof, in love with Everill, but she loves her best friend and is very much like, oh, well, if Esther wants to be with Everill, like I should support that. They go to dinner that night. Sir Philip Gardner who had, you know, obviously been with Everill when he was met by Hope and Esther, he is invited to dinner too. This entire dinner is a very awkward affair. The particulars are just not necessary. It's just very awkward. <laughs> Afterwards, Governor Winthrop brings Mr. Fletcher into a different room and he basically goes, Esther's dad has sent me a message and he wants Esther to marry Everill. And uh, I agree. I know you wanted him to marry Hope, but she's obviously like the spawn of Satan. Like she's just very much not pious enough. Um, she needs a godly man in her life. Um, Everill needs to be with Esther. Uh, since I am the governor and I am obviously the the uh, the moral authority of everything, uh, this is how it's gotta be. 
Um, Mr. Fudger is very, very pissed off about this, and he really does not like this whatsoever, but he's essentially gaslit into believing that this is for the best. He's like, well, then who is Hope going to be with? Because this is a question for them and not like for Hope herself or anything. And so Governor Winthrop is like, Sir Philip Gardner out there, he seems like a very pious guy. He seems like a very godly man. Why don't we set them up? New dude, you know, strange as fuck, strange boy hanging around him. Absolutely the best pick. Total, total catch. One hundred, one hundo, right? Like it doesn't make any sense. Um, but apparently it does to Governor Winthrop. So it is settled between the men, uh, not necessarily because Fletcher super agrees, but because what Governor Winthrop settles is what gets settled. So that happens. A week goes by. This is a week of Hope basically trying to matchmake Esther and Everell, even though she is kind of having an internal struggle with it as well, because like stated, she's very obviously in love with Everell herself. And also she's being courted by Sir Philip Gardner and she's super uninterested and very almost, almost unaware. Like she's just very not even realizing that Gardner is trying to pick her up, basically. Everell, meanwhile, is oblivious to what Hope is trying to do. And he is very aware, like, oh, I'm in love with Hope. This is who I want. And it's such a problem that Mr. Fletcher, his dad, has to have a talk with him about it. Everell is like, what the fuck are you talking about? And he's like, you know what I'm talking about. You can't pursue him, pursue her. Everell is pretty pissed off about this, but this is also his father. So his father telling him something is not really something that he can say no to. Except he's a grown ass man. He he could, he could in theory say no, but it would not look good basically for him to kind of defy his father's wishes here. Um, Irritants are trash. Yeah. He's kind of like, well, fuck. Now I'm very upset because this is not what I want. I, I want to pursue hope. I don't want to be told that I'm not allowed to. They off to church one evening, uncharacteristically for Hope, she is very, very anxious and almost a little rude. And so everyone kind of takes note of that. They're like, what the fuck is going on? And as they're walking home later, she's just so in a tizzy that she's just like, I cannot deal with y'all. And she leaves them and just like goes off. And everyone is like, what the fuck is wrong with her? Like, what is happening? And so they go home. She's gone purposefully off into the woods. The page of Sir Philip Gardner follows her. They have this weird conversation. The page is basically to her like, please don't trust my master. Hope is like, what? And she's like, yeah, he's not a good dude. So sorry, I don't mean to freak you out. I'm just looking out for you. Yeah, just don't trust him. And then just leaves. And Hope is like, okay, that was fucking weird. And then she just continues on. Cut scene. Now we are at Governor Winthrop's. Everyone has noticed that Hope has not returned home yet. And it's late now. It's after nine o'clock. She should definitely be home by now. And it is very inappropriate for a woman to be out right now. Everyone is freaking out. Everill and his dad are super distressed and worried. Finally, when she arrives, everyone is like... (gasps) Because when she walks in, she walks in with Sir Philip Gardner and his coat around her. It's been like raining outside. So she's just like drenched. 
when she walks in like this with Sir Philip Gardner and his coat around her, it's after nine. No one's known where she is for the last couple hours. This is not a good situation for her. And Everill is like, what the fuck? And is devastated by that. And she is just unaware of what it looks like to everyone else. <laughs> and she is very like trying to kind of avoid what was having this conversation with everyone. They call her to explain and she's just like, I can't explain. I'm very sorry. And, that, and that's the only answer she gives. And everyone is like, no, hope that's not how this works. <laughs> and she's like, no, no, I'm serious. Like, I didn't do anything wrong. I just cannot tell you what it was that I was doing. So, hey, bye. And so she leaves and goes upstairs. And Esther is like, okay, listen, I know my, my best friend. Just everyone calm the fuck down. Everything's probably perfectly understandable. There's a reasonable explanation, I swear. And Everell is just beside himself because he is, of course, not only is this very improper of her, so it is a slight on her. This is like, he would have never considered her to act like this, but also he's jealous. He's just very fucking jealous because, oh, hell no. She was just out with Sir Philip Gardner, apparently, is what it looks like. She can't fucking like that douche, basically, is his, like, response here. Like, the dude's a fucking nerd, is basically his answer. Yeah. And now Everell is kind of making a connection, like, oh, shit. Now he's going back through the things that just happened over the week, and he's like, she keeps shoving Esther in my face all the time. Is that why? Is it because she's super into Gardner, and she can see that I'm super into her, and so she's trying to, like, get me away? And he's just, like, all up in his head about it. It's so, it's very cute and sad and distressing all at once. Esther goes upstairs to hope after hope leaves basically and it's like girl what the actual fuck and hope is like i'm really sorry but i literally really cannot tell you like i love you but i literally can't and esther is like okay well i love you too you should be telling me but whatever i guess good night you heathen is essentially esther's response now we rewind we get to go back and learn what it was hope was really doing earlier in that day at the house, there was a Native American woman who came to the door and she was trying to sell moccasins according to what she said. When Hope comes up to her, the woman looks at her and kind of waits until they're kind of alone and then reveals to her, your Hope, correct? And Hope is like, yeah, <laughs> why? And she's like, I'm Majawiska. Hope is like, <laughs> like her brain short circuits and is like oh and at first tries to like go like get Everell and Madras is like no 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 don't don't do that <laughs> um I'm here for a very specific purpose I am here to set up a meeting with you later I need to talk to you about your sister and Hope is like oh fuck yeah yeah for sure absolutely so they set up a time and place when that happens, Madriska leaves. And so this is why that whole rest of the day, now we understand why she was so distracted and kind of anxious and almost rude at times because she was thinking about this the entire rest of the day. Yeah. So when Hope comes to the meeting place in the woods after she's left everyone and after Rosalind, the page boy, has talked to her so weird, she 
meets up with Majewiska in a cemetery and she and Majewiska talk about her sister. Faith has now married Oneko. So predictable. Hope has this kind of knee jerk reaction to this of like kind of horror and shock. But Majewiska very quickly makes it clear to her that like, first of all, being a Native American is not a fucking death sentence. (laughs) So like calm the fuck down racist. But also faith is Catholic. Remember that there's lots of like conversion attempts constantly happening back in these days with regards to the Native Americans. And one thing that was a huge thing that the Puritans were not doing because they were pieces of shit that the Catholics were, I mean, they were also being pieces of shit, but less so in this regard was where the Puritans were all like, "Mm, savages are all Satan worshipers and not a lot of them are redeemable. The Catholics were like, well, everyone is redeemable. We'll just Catholicize everything. We'll just, um, you know, convert you. So faith is a Catholic because Oneko is Catholic. She's a follower of a Christian sect. She's not a Puritan, but she is Catholic. Oneko treats her very well and is just doting on his wife because he loves her. Hope is like, okay, well, I'm grateful for that. You're correct. I, I, that are, those are things to be grateful for. And I'm sorry. And I'm happy for her then. Majewiska basically says, yeah. So when you helped Nalima escape, she made it to us. She was in very dire straits. She was very sick, but she basically got to us. And right before she died, she made me swear to fulfill the promise that she made to you. And Hope is like, absolutely. Let's fucking go. Let's do this. Want to see my sister again. Are you remember Digby, our family's servant friend, dude, he like has this vacation house basically on like some island in the middle of this lake that they all live at or hang out at she was like that island it's secluded it you know it'll be perfect let's meet up there and Majewiska is like all right she asks if she can bring Everell with her because she I mean assumes that Everell would want to see Majewiska and Majewiska says no and first of all because she's promised her dad that she was never going to return to the Fletchers. And she knows about herself that she kind of has too big of a soft spot for Everell um, and doesn't trust herself basically to not be able to see him and then kind of want to stay. She's like, no, no, you cannot bring him. It is only you. You cannot tell anyone else. Hope is like, okay, well, you know, I'm going to try and convince my sister to come back with me. And Majewiska's like, you're not going to succeed like good fucking luck <laughs> basically yeah, like she's been with us for seven years at this point she ain't going she's back like you're she's not going to want to come with you like you can try all you fucking want basically is her answer like it's no skin off my back it's gonna be up to her and i'm telling you right now you shouldn't get your hopes up because she's not gonna come with you like she has a life here she has a husband she is happy Five days from now, it is settled. Majewiska leaves. Hope like thinks for a while. She kind of stood and thought about everything so long that she gets caught in a storm that suddenly begins. And this is why she's like, oh, fuck. She has to start dashing home. And Sir Philip Gardner pops up out of the bushes and is like, wow, you were out here kind of late. Do you need um, like a coat and stuff? This is a little weird that you're out here. And she's like, 
can you please not? I need to get fucking home. It is literally pouring cats and dogs right now. And he's like, yeah, 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 absolutely. And he like helps her and gets her home. And now we know the rest. So now we've caught up with that was what happened with Hope Leslie. (laughs) That night, Sir Philip Gardner goes to bed at the house that he is staying at. And he uh, writes a letter. This letter reveals a whole lot. Gardner, who is pretending to be a Puritan, is not a Puritan. He is a Catholic gasp. He is basically here because he was offered, and this is historical record as well. In fact, one of the places that they went to go to was an actual historical event that was occurring back in this day. There are anti-Puritan leaders that are kind of running around in the the colonies at this point. And one of the anti-Puritan leaders promised him some like good money and like position in society they were kind of thinking that they were going to be able to convince everyone and kind of overthrow Puritanism or something in the colonies. So he like set sail out there that obviously backfired. His friends got put on trial and stuff instead. So when he got here, he had to like switch tactics and pretend to be Puritan. So now he is staying rather than having just kind of like figured out a different thing to do. He's staying here because of hope. He quote unquote, loves her. It's not love. It's not the same kind of love as we all know what love really is. But for him, it's love. It's love because she has a lot of money. She's also gorgeous. Like, obviously, she's very attractive. So Hamilton and the Schuyler sisters. Yeah. We learned in this letter that Rosalind, his page boy, is not a boy. Rosalind is a girl. Oh, what the fuck? She's not his ward. She's his lover. So the dude is a scoundrel, basically. Ew. Rosalind is in love with him. And she just, he just uses her. Is like, I can't get rid of her. She won't fucking leave me alone. So he just lets her come along and makes her do shit for him. And then has sex with her. Ugh. Dude is not great. He essentially is like, okay, well, if you're going to stay, you have to be disguised. And so that's why she's Rosalind the page boy. Anyway, about hope. He um, is like to the person that he's writing to, I'm going to get her to marry me. But if I can't convince her, I'll just kidnap her. I know some pirate friends. I can just pay them to kidnap her for me. And then we're just going to set sail back to England. So she'll have to marry me. Like, what the she'll just fuck? Get, she'll get over it. <laughs> <laughs> this is some Pocahontas shit. Mm. <laughs> mm. Mm. That guy fucking sucks. <laughs> I mean, like, I knew he was going to suck from the beginning. He was shady as shit. But <laughs> anyway, that's Sir Philip Gardner. Not <laughs> that guy. So now we get a week of mess, basically, right? Hope is distracted as fuck about the meeting with Najawiska and her sister. So she's not realizing that Everell is very clearly in love with her and very clearly upset as fuck that she was so improper that other night and that the only reason that he can see for that behavior is that she would be in love with Gardner and that they have had some sort of tryst so he's very upset about that and he's kind of being mean to her and she's hurt by that without understanding any of it and he's not understanding why she's continuing to be so peculiar and so it's a big mess so the day comes to leave for the island And Esther and Everill and everyone else are kind of going with Hope on her way there. It is literally only at this moment in the story that Hope comes to a like a sudden 
realization consciously like, oh no, I love Everell. Like I'm in love with him. She, and it, this comes because she's noticing that other people are noticing Esther and Everell together and are kind of talking about it favorably, et cetera, et cetera. So now she's very like mortified. When they get to the island, Digby kind of greets them. He makes this huge statement about how Everell was in love with Majewiska when he was a, a boy. And Everell agrees with this sentiment, by the way. But Hope has clearly surpassed that love for him now. And she's his clear soulmate. And wow, we're having a wedding soon, probably, right, guys? Everyone is very much like the eyes, mouth emoji here in response. Like, like, uh, and Hope is like, no, no, no. You see, it's okay. It's okay, Digby. No, you didn't say anything wrong. You're just confused about the bride. That's all. It's not me. It's actually Esther. <laughs> see, because he and he and Esther are getting married. And she like joins their hand and she's like, <laughs> okay, goodbye. And like runs away. And now everyone else is even more of the like <laughs> I emoji response here because he has not proposed to her. No one has talked about marriage, but now Hope has very much essentially just put it out in the open. Everell and Esther are going to get married and put their hands together. And you can't just like backtrack from that now. So Everell and Esther are like, I guess we're getting married now. I'm so happy, question mark, Hope runs off like a dipshit because she's again mortified at her behavior and Gardner kind of catches up with her because he has he's like been off doing something else but he hears what just happened and he's like oh it's time it's my time this is a sign of the gods and he just drops down to one knee right here at the same time Everell has also followed her because duh so he sees Philip Gardner dropped down to one knee right in front of her and is like, uh, and runs away himself. Hope is now like, no, for some reason it has not hit until right now. Like, holy shit, you just proposed to me? No, I'm not fucking marrying you. And leaves. And Gardner is just like, why are women? He follows her again anyway, though. And this time he comes up, but he hangs back because when he finds her, he finds she and Everill are now talking together and Everill is basically like so you're staying on the island tonight and she's like yep and he's like is Sir Philip Gardner staying and she's like what the fuck dude like excuse me because that's an implication he basically is like hope you're killing me I don't know why you've done this to me I very obviously am in love with you but now I am betrothed to your best friend because you made me be betrothed to your best friend, okay? So I don't know how else to describe to you how much you are literally killing me on the inside. But if this is the fate that I now have to have because of you, because you did this, listen to me. Do not fucking like Sir Philip Gardner. Please, for the love of God, do not marry that dude. He is an asshole don't do it. She right now is basically triple emoji response of like, Everell actually loves me. Oh shit. 
I've ruined everything. He mistakes her sort of heartbreak here because she kind of very obviously has a heartbroken reaction to what's going on. And he mistakes it for her being heartbroken because she loves Gardner. And that's, and he's telling her to not <laughs> be in love with him. Oh and, my God. And yeah, so now if he's they just made like, this into a movie, I would stab my eyes out. This is like fucking excruciating. <laughs> he's basically devastated because this uh, to him confirms his worst nightmare. And now they're both devastated. And she's just like, I gotta go by. And oh just my leave. God. And when she leaves, Gardner, by the way, remember, has been sitting at the sideline and has heard all, all of this. So he makes a very snide-ass comment to Everell, making it clear, yes, he is. I am actually staying on the island as well. And so Everell is like, cool, kill me. <laughs> Basically like, kill me right now. And he goes back to the boat and everyone else has also just realized now that they are leaving, Sir Philip Gardner is staying as well on the island as with Hope. And everyone is fucking confused about this because again, it is an inappropriate implication. They are not engaged. It is improper. Hope is just like, okay, well, my life fucking sucks. Guess I'm going to go meet my sister now. And isn't very much like throwing herself into this because now it is one of the only happy things that she has to look forward to in this moment. She goes to the meeting that night she sees her sister for the first time in a long ass time she embraces her sister and tries to talk to her but it is very clear very quickly faith is different because she's lived for seven years as a native american she doesn't speak english anymore she doesn't look like a white girl looks anymore she dresses like a native american because she essentially is a native american Majewiska has to interpret for them. Hope tries to get her to come with her back home, but it is not working. Faith does not want it. Oh, and Aneko and Mononoto are also here. Faith, no, like she, I mean, she doesn't understand English, but she understands enough about what's going on and Majewiska is interpreting for her, for her to be like, no, not going back with you. It's nice to see you, but um, I don't really know you. As this is all happening, very suddenly a trap is sprung. The governor's people with Sir Philip Gardner spring on this meeting on the shore and capture Majewiska and Faith. Hope at this moment when she sees what's going on is very confused. And when she realizes that it, it's a trap, she makes it very clear and starts trying to yell like, I had no idea that this was happening. I did not tell anyone, stop doing this. Oneko, before he and Mononoto make their escape, takes Hope captive. So now everyone is freaking out because this trap has backfired. What they wanted was to capture everyone, call it a day, and now they've lost hope. It's made very obvious now that Sir Philip Gardner, basically ever since last week, has been planning this trap with the governor's people. He overheard Majewiska and Hope's initial meeting in the woods, and that's why he was there so quickly when she left. Ever since then, He's been talking with the, the governor's people and setting up this trap to try and get high profile rebel people. Mononoto is uh, at war with the Puritans and Majewiska is his daughter and is a very prominent figure in the Native American community that is against <laughs> the Puritans. 
they were like, ah, this is going to be fucking great. We're going to capture two of the most important influential figures in the Native Americans' war against us right now. They bring Majewiska and Faith back to the governor's house. Everill is like, holy shit, Majewiska. He's very pissed off at the governor and Sir Philip Gardner because it becomes obvious very quickly that Majewiska is a prisoner. He and his dad both, his dad is very pissed as well. They consider this an affront to their morals because Majewiska is part of the family for them, basically. She is not one of the other Native Americans. She is a noble woman and should be treated as such. There's nothing wrong with her. So he and his dad are trying to convince the governor, first of all, to let her go, but that's not working. So then to keep her in the house so that she's not going to be in a jail cell. Uh, The governor is not having any of it. Everill is very, very pissed off, increasingly so, um, to the point that Majewiska has to call him off, basically. Like, Everill, it's okay. However, just so we're clear, Governor Winthrop, whatever you do to me, I guarantee you that's exactly what my brother will do to Hope Leslie. This is the moment where everyone realizes, including Everill, Hope has been captured too. Super fucking cool. And Everill's super upset now. As Oneko and Mononoto and Hope are trying to get away, Mononoto is struck by lightning. (laughs) Okay. And so Oneko has to stop to take care of his father. And while this happens, Hope escapes. When she does this, she runs into a group of sailors. At first she runs up because she thinks like, oh, they'll, they'll help me. But it's very quickly when she wakes them up, she realizes these are not like, these are not like savory individuals. These are unsavory individuals. These are like pirate kind of individuals. And so she has to run away from them. They start chasing her because they're going to rape her. Just FYI, that's the goal here. Um, They're pirates. Yeah, so she has to run away from them now too. Climbs into this boat to hide. And inside there, there is an Italian sailor named Antonio. One of the greatest characters in this entire story. Antonio, he was like asleep and she wakes him up basically. And he is like, sees her and she's so beautiful and has come upon him in such like a dream stupor that he's like, are you the Virgin Mary? <laughs> and she's like, no. And he's like, oh, you're just a saint. I see, I see. And he just like believes that she's like his patron saint basically. And when she realizes that this is what's happening, She's, she does not disillusion him of this. She's like, yes, absolutely. I am here, Antonio. I need your help, right? <laughs> like, you have to save me. <laughs> and he's like, I can do every, I, I'll do anything for you. I, whatever it is, I can do it. He rows her to shore. Rosalind is out there because everyone's out there because everyone's looking for hope. She and Hope talk again. Hope has a lot of sympathy for her. Like she can tell that Rosalind is a very upset individual but she doesn't know who Rosalind is yet she still thinks that this is a boy she's just exhausted and traumatized so after a bit she's like "Mm, it's time to faint that's what girls do in this situation right I think we faint here I go she faints and so Rosalind takes Hope back to the Fletchers Everill um you know is beside himself and carries her home so for three days she's bedridden with a fever and she's close to dying basically and Esther tends to her 
Um, and Everell is just, you know, again, beside himself. Esther is making this realization, like he is very clearly in love with her because like, you know, um, yeah. he hasn't like worried about me in this situation at all. He doesn't give a shit about me right now. I am exhausted too, right? Like I'm taking care of the dying girl. If he loved me and did not love her, you would think that he would treat me in this situation a little different, but he has no regard for me. And Esther's not an idiot. And so she is like, cool. And finally, Hope does come out of it and is in the clear. While this is occurring, Sir Philip Gardner goes and visits Majewiska in jail. He says, hey, I can get you out of here. I can give you stuff that you can use to escape. In order for me to give those to you, you have to promise me something. And she's like, what? <laughs> you dumb white dude. <laughs> He's like, you have to take Roslyn with you. I don't care what you do with her. You just have to take her. And Majewiska is like, let me think about that. No. <laughs> Sir Philip, fuck. and Sir Philip Gardner is kind of incredulous here of like you should want to escape like I'm offering you your freedom and she's like yeah my freedom is not worth my dignity and my like my soul and that's kind of what you're trying to like sell me out for here and I'm not about it so go fuck yourself is basically her answer to this guy yeah. And so he's like, well, fine, fuck you too. And he essentially like goes off to like visit a different dude, one of his like um, anti-Puritan guys in the other, one of the other cells. The guy starts trying to choke him. Uh, who knows Good. why? Dumbass person, right? Because he deserves but it. He gets saved. But in this moment, he starts, like he makes some claims here and makes some statements that a Puritan would never say. Loses his cool a little bit and his like, and reveals that he's catholic yeah mm -hmm. he kind of gathers himself really quickly and he leaves but people have taken notice and by the way during this choking escapade when everyone was paying attention to the cell over there everell was putting a ladder up to the jailhouse window to go up and try and bust magiwiska out of jail he almost succeeds but at the very last minute he has to leave again because they're coming back. He can't get an opening enough for her to be able to get out in time. So they kind of just have a moment where they stare at each other. And, you know, he's very obviously like, fuck, I'm sorry. And yeah. leave. Mag this has made Majewiska very happy because one of the things that Sir Philip Gardner was saying to her to try and kind of like needle her basically because he's also just an asshole was that Everell clearly doesn't give a shit about her anymore. Because where is he otherwise? Then Everell does this. So she's kind of very obviously like, no, he is exactly who I thought he was. You know, he is a good person, just like I've always known he is. Like, fuck that dude. Hope is better now. Like I said, she comes down to see everyone. Faith is here, right? Remember, Faith um, was captured and brought back home. And um, Faith is miserable. She is not doing good. Of course. Uh, Everyone is trying to make her happy. Everyone's trying to distract her or do things to get her. And she's just listless. She doesn't, because she doesn't speak English and she does not want to be here. She wants nothing to do with any of these people. So everyone is just trying their best, but she's very obviously miserable. Everyone wants to know Hope's story. So she tells it and she begs the governor to let Majewiska go. And the governor is like, nah and so she's pissed off about that in her room later esther comes in and is very pissed off at her and hope is like what the fuck is wrong with you and esther kind of breaks down and starts sobbing and so 
Hope is very upset by this and is like, oh my God, what is wrong? Like, tell me what is wrong. Tell me what I did. I'm so sorry. Like, what can I do? And after a while, Esther perks up a little bit and is like, I think everything is going to be okay. I love you. I'm really sorry that I was really mean to you right now. Let's not talk right now. Let's just go to bed. Esther mentions kind of in passing that Everill is trying to figure out a way to bust Majewiska out of jail. Hope is like, hmm, is he now? And they go to bed. So Esther is like this and is so upset because we kind of learn flashback style that she's essentially found out from Everill's own lips that he's in love with Hope. They had a fight about Majewiska earlier in the day because of Everill trying to figure out a way to bust her out. And of course, Esther is the very pious and the very prim proper one. So she is like, you shouldn't be talking like this. You can't be doing this. Like, this is not good. And Everill was like, what the fuck is wrong with you? Like, have some like actual like common sense, some empathy and some understanding. Like the right answer that you think is the correct answer here is clearly not the right one. Otherwise, none of us would be feeling this shitty. You understand that, right? And she's like, well, no, I don't understand that because that's not what the Bible says, basically. So they just have this, this fight and she kind of stomps out on him, but she hangs back for a moment to listen to him. And he exclaims basically to himself in a way where he mentions being in love with Hope. That was essentially what prompted her to then run up to the room. And Majewiska is put on trial. Everill and Mr. Fletcher bring in a bomb-ass lawyer named Elliot. Gardner basically um, lies about seeing her doing some evil devil dance. And he's doing this because he's realizing now that he's put himself in kind of a pickle because of the fact that he went to see Majewiska because he didn't expect her to say no. And now that she said no, she has leverage over him because they cannot know that he went and asked her what he did. So now he's like, well, fuck, I got to make sure that they put her away. Kill her. It doesn't work very well because when it is her turn, she is like, first of all, I do not recognize any of your guys's power over me. I am not a Puritan. I don't care about your guys's trial system. This is a fucking farce basically. But then second of all, she goes, Hey dude. And she whips out a rosary and tosses it at Sir Philip Gardner's feet. And is like, take back your rosary that you dropped in my prison cell the other night, bitch. Yes. <laughs> she was like, so if you're, um, if you're really a man of your faith, kiss that fucking rosary and take back the lies that you just said against me, you dumbass motherfucker. And everyone in the room is just like, oh shit. Okay. Well now we got to put this man under oath and see what the fuck is going on here. And he's like, fuck, fuck. Okay. Um, hmm. They're like, okay, well, Majewiska, what is it that you're talking about here? She's like, well, I would tell you that, but I don't want to hurt an innocent person in this room. They're like, how will what do we need to do to make you feel comfortable testifying and she's like send that page boy out of the room and they look over and everyone's like oh and everyone sort of starts making some connections now because they kick her out and Gardner is very cruel to her physically assaults her basically to shove her out of the room and everyone is essentially like ah well yeah that's a girl. That's not a boy. Now we're on to you. Gardner is like, whoo, Governor Winthrop, buddy, pal, listen, I can super explain what's going on here, but we just need to meet in private. Um, and yeah, it's just, it's some very, some very personal matters. So we shouldn't just be doing it out in the open. And the governor's like, sure, sure. So the trial 
is postponed now, I guess. The governor's like, yeah, I guess we got to postpone this because we got to investigate this asshole and this entire incident to see what this has to do with what we do now with Majewiska. And Majewiska very shockingly goes, no, do not delay my trial. I don't accept that. And everyone's like, what? And she was like, no, I'm not going to be a prisoner anymore. Kill me now or let me go. With this, she wins over pretty much everyone in the courtroom suddenly um everyone's like oh fuck that is a that is a badass bitch move but of course there is some sort of evil white puritan asshole that is basically like how dare you public for be satan apologists and let this devil worshiper seduce you into thinking that she could be a human ha and so the governor's like no sorry girl can't do that um you're going to continue to be a prisoner the trial is on hold take her away now, this is like some Ocean's Eleven shit. So like this evening, Sir Philip Gardner is coming to meet the governor. Esther is holed up with her aunt and her uncle in like the, their private quarters. Everill is MIA. Hope is like, hey, Tudor, I gotta uh, take you on an errand with me. Craddock, come on, I gotta take you somewhere. Before Everill had left, he and uh, Hope had hatched their plan to break out Majewiska. When this happened, Jeanette, remember the servant? She overhears them talking about this. When Philip Gardner comes to the house, he interrupts Everill and Hope in this discussion. So they disperse. But the minute that they disperse, Jeanette comes out of like the shadows basically. He's like, I have to tell you what I just heard. And she tells him what their plan is. And he's like, brilliant. This is my fucking ticket out of all of this shit. So he is like, okay, Jeanette, don't tell anyone. We're going to handle this delicately. And he convinces her to keep her mouth shut, basically. And instead of going to his meeting, he leaves. He goes to his pirate friends. All right, guys, this is the plan. At this appointed time, my girl is going to be with a companion at this shore. You got to go. You got to kidnap her. You got to bring her to the boat. And then we're going to be off. Meanwhile, Hope takes Master Craddock to the jail. And she disguises him. It's not that she disguises him. It's that she dresses him up in a very specific way. And he's like, why am I dressed up like this? And she's like, oh, don't worry about it. And she brings him into the jail and she's like, can we see Majewiska? And she kind of charms the pants off the jailer. And the jailer's like, yeah, Miss Leslie, go on in. And they go to see Majewiska. And she essentially switches their places. And she puts the clothes on Majewiska and puts her tutor in the bed. Damn. Dresses her up like the tutor was. And the way she addressed it was that it was so bulky that you wouldn't be able to tell who's under those clothes. <laughs> and she just charms the pants off of the jailer again and whisks Majewiska out of fucking prison. That's amazing. Meanwhile, at the governor's house, Oneko has come to the house disguised and he finagles it to where he and Faith are alone in the same room. She is immediately like, oh, fuck, yeah, let's fucking go. Unfortunately, at the last moment, Jeanette interrupts them. Jeanette immediately is like, oh, I'm going to go fucking sound the alarm. And then goes like, no, you're definitely not going to do that. And he pulls a knife on her and is like, I'm totally fine bringing a prisoner along with me because I'm not leaving without my fucking wife. And so he wraps her up in a shawl so that it like keeps her quiet and they bring her and they head out to escape. At the shore, 
the pirates descend on Oneko and Faith and Jeanette. They see Oneko and Faith, and those are very obviously not the girl that Sir Philip Gardner described. So it has to be the other one. And this girl is cloaked, so you can't tell who it is. So they just naturally make the mistake that Jeanette is Hope and kidnap her. Damn. And they bring Jeanette to Sir Philip Gardner. She's wrapped up. Remember, you cannot tell who it is. So he can't really tell that it's not Hope and they're in a very big hurry. He puts her aside and kind of puts her off in a chamber or whatever, and they're getting everything ready. And Rosalind this whole time has been kind of having this awakening. This is never going to change. I am in love with a piece of shit. My life is never going to get better because of the choices that I've made. Um, And she's not wrong. She is young, but she is now an impure woman who has lived in sin for a long time. She's very far away from home. She's an orphan, like just a little bit of background on her. No one really cares about her. He, the reason that she fell in love with him in the, in the first place is because he was a piece of shit and kind of groomed her. He's the only person who had ever shown her kindness. So she naturally got connected to him. But now she's like, I can't be connected to him anymore because he's too evil of a person. And without him, I have nothing. So when all of this is happening, she's like, all right, this is my swan song. I'm going to be a badass. And she takes a lantern to a bunch of gunpowder on the boat and blows the motherfucking boat up with everyone inside of it. Yes, that's the she shit. Up the entire motherfucking boat. Mm-hmm. That's the fucking shit. Good for her. Hope and Majewiska are now good. Everell meets them on their way to the river um, where Digby is waiting for them with a boat to take Majewiska anywhere that she needs to go. They beg her basically to come back to see them again, that they love her, of course. They want to see her again. And she's like, yeah, guys, I love you too, but that's probably not going to happen. You guys know that. She's like, but it's okay. You guys are going to be fine. Like you guys are very clearly in love with each other. And this is a very bittersweet moment because they don't know anything about everything else that's going on in the background. And as far as they are all concerned, Everell is still engaged to Esther at this point. Yeah. So it's very bittersweet. They say their goodbyes. Majewiska gets away safely. Everell returns Hope to the house. He believes this is the last time he's going to ever see her, unfortunately. He turns himself into jail because he's just committed a crime. Hope returns and everyone is like, holy shit, we fucking thought you were dead. So it turns out Antonio... The Italian pirate man that had saved her had heard, because he was one of the pirates, all of Gardner's shit, and Antonio was like, I'm not fucking down with this. Like, I get that I'm a pirate, but I got standards, basically. Yeah. And he he tells everyone at the house about the plans and all that he knows. And from what he understood, they were kidnapping Hope Leslie. And then they hear that the boat blows up. So they've been thinking this whole time that Hope Leslie exploded up in that boat. So everyone is very happy. Hope and Esther go to bed. They wake up, however, or she wakes up. Hope does, and Esther is gone. She has left a note for Everell and Hope, breaking the engagement and giving them her blessing. And she has decided to return to England for a few years. And that is the end. I mean, you kind of get what you want because your man's in jail and is probably going to hang for his crimes. He doesn't hang. So what happens is essentially he gets off with a slap on the wrist. For letting a native woman escape who was already an enemy 
Okay. <laughs> I'll read it. Puritans, you make no sense, but okay. Essentially, the governor puts in a good word for treating all of the parties in this favorably because he likes them. His associates lent a favorable ear to these suggestions. Most of them considered the offense very much alleviated by the use of the two principal parties and the strong motives that actuated them. So remember that Majewiska super won over a bunch of the people in, in her trial. So a lot of the people who were in power were already feeling more sympathetic to her. The fact that Everell and Hope were very young was something that went a long way in excusing their judgments of error. It's not that we're saying that what you did was okay. It's still wrong, but it's because you felt very strongly about this and you didn't know any better, basically. The conclusion of the whole matter was that Miss Leslie and Master Craddock would receive a private admonition from the governor and a free pardon, and that Mr. Everell Fletcher should be restored to liberty on condition that at the next sitting of the court, he appeared in the prisoner's bar to receive a public censure and be admonished as to his future carriage. To this sentence, Everell submitted at the proper time with due humility and a very becoming, and as, as said the elders, edifying modesty. Interesting. This was published, like I said, in two volumes in 1827. It was very successful. Critics actually very specifically compare it to James Fenimore Cooper's Last of the Mohicans as almost like a foil. Catherine Maria Sedgwick was born December 28th, 1789, because I have to talk about Catherine Maria Sedgwick because... She's crazy, y'all. She's one of the best. She was born in Stockbridge, Massachusetts. Her mother was Pamela Dwight of the New England Dwight family, who was a daughter of General Joseph Dwight, granddaughter of Ephraim Williams, founder of Williams College. Her father was Theodore Sedgwick, who was a prosperous lawyer and a successful politician, later elected Speaker of the United States House of Representatives in 1802, eventually appointed Justice of the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court. So she comes from family. She comes from a line, a lineage. Her family legacies are very important. As a child, Sedgwick was cared for by the person named Elizabeth Freeman, aka Mumbet, the first enslaved African-American to file and win a freedom suit in Massachusetts. Oh, shit. The Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court ruling in freedom's favor, found slavery to be inconsistent with the 1780 Massachusetts state constitution. Freeman was born a slave around 1744, just not treated the greatest as most slaves were not. The place that she was at was of the house of a Yale educated lawyer. His house was the site of a lot of political discussions. And in 1780, Freeman heard of the, ratifi the newly ratified Massachusetts constitution that was read at a public gathering in Sheffield included the following, that, quote, all men are born free and equal and have certain natural, essential, and inalienable rights, among which may be reckoned the right of enjoying and defending their lives and liberties, that of acquiring, possessing, and protecting property, in fine, that of seeking and obtaining their safety and happiness. And that's the Massachusetts Constitution, Article 1. And inspired by this, she sought the counsel of Theodore Sedgwick, Catherine Sedgwick's father, who was a very young abolitionist minded lawyer and she essentially was like help me to sue for freedom in court and Cedric is like yeah I'll do that they essentially put together a case where they sued that this new constitution means that slavery is no longer constitutional and they rule 
in her favor. She becomes the first African-American woman to be set free under the Massachusetts state constitution. And the court assessed damages of 30 shillings and awarded compensation for their labor. So she didn't just win her freedom, she won damages. After the ruling, she took on her own name and she decided on Elizabeth Freeman. Her former master asked her to return to his house to work for wages. And she was like, nah. And instead she went to work for her attorney, Theodore Sedgwick, as a, a like a nanny, basically, um, and caretaker and household worker um, until 1808. She, in fact, became widely recognized after her being free as um, a healer and a midwife and a nurse. And once the Sedgwick children were grown, she moved to her own house. Her real age is never really known. She probably died at about 85 um, in 1829, December of 1829. And she is buried in the Sedgwick family plot. She is the only non-Sedgwick buried in the Sedgwick plot. Her tombstone reads, Elizabeth Freeman, also known by the name of Mumbet, died December 28th, 1829. Her supposed age was 85 years. She was born a slave and remained a slave for nearly 30 years. She could neither read nor write, yet in her own sphere, she had no superior or equal. She neither wasted time nor property. She never violated a trust nor failed to perform a duty. In every situation of domestic trial, she was the most efficient helper and the tenderest friend. Good mother, farewell. That is one of the people that Sedgwick grew up with. That was her governess, one of the very like influential figures in her life. And she was very affected by that and very much affected by her faith. She was a Unitarianist. So it is a non-Trinity associated Christian movement. They don't believe in the Trinity as it were. They believe in God as one sort of single entity. And the thing about Unitarianism is that it is the rejection of several Christian doctrines, especially at the time of the Puritans um, and also the predominant religions that were of her time. So the idea of things like original sin, of predestination, um, the idea of the Bible being sort of infallible, they did not really ascribe to that kind of stuff. Ultimately focused on reason in interpreting the scriptures and freedom of sort of conscience. It's very, very important basically because of um, the fact that they have liberal views of God and like the purpose of life and that it's revealed through reason and scholarship and science and philosophy and not just scripture. Religion and science can essentially coexist. These all, of course, colored how she wrote about stuff. And it is very obvious that her intention writing Hope Leslie was to write a story of one that was going against the common ways to talk about Native Americans. Um, and to talk about religion even, and this idea of how sure Puritans were of themselves and that they were essentially very obviously wrong morally in a lot of ways. And to her, this was her way of kind of saying Native Americans are human beings just like you and me. Very, it's very progressive for her time, for um, the, the works that come out of that time. It's just incredibly progressive. She's just great. She's written a lot of other stuff too. Not always, but a lot of the stuff that she wrote, especially her prominent works, were things that she was kind of trying to be progressive in the thoughts that she was putting forward. 
one last thing that is interesting about her, <laughs> Theodore Sedgwick, her father, the, is the fourth great-grandfather of Kira Sedgwick. So she's like <laughs> a great aunt or something? I believe it's, yeah, aunt, I think. So it's like her brothers or sisters? She never married. Catherine Sedgwick never had kids, never married. Oh, okay. So it's one of her siblings, mm-hmm. great-grandkids. Okay. That's a really good book. Um, Shit's wild, though. <laughs> so much happens in this book it's like insane. like in no single person's life is this much drama happening at any point <laughs> <A lot. laughs> just 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 fucking wild i'm glad that douchebag got blown up at the end Rosalind, i'm sad that she killed herself to make it happen yeah but yeah. more problems with the puritans and religion and just in general this time period of history was the idea that a woman without love is nothing she basically realized that the man she loved was trash and then came to the conclusion based on the fact that the guy she loved was trash that fuck it let's just kill myself that is meant to be coupled with to the idea of here that technically speaking even if she wanted to break free and have her own new life that wouldn't probably happen in the in the colonies and probably not in Europe either and any cuz nobody really cared about her as a young woman who is already in the eyes of culture nowadays quote unquote ruined because she is not a virgin but nobody knows she's not a virgin the only person who knew is dead taking herself out of the equation she's first of all very young obviously so she's very passionate heated the moment decisions absolutely but also what is she going to trade for that she can run away but then she's leaving him to be evil to hope leslie yeah that's fair and she considers hope like she likes hope there's a reason that she talks to her a couple times she doesn't want to like hope she wants yeah. to hate hope because hope is essentially her rival, but she doesn't hate hope because it's kind of impossible to, because hope is <laughs> kind of a great person. So she is like, I can't have him myself because he will not be mine. If I leave him, he will continue being evil to other people, good people, people like me. Right. And she doesn't have a good opinion of herself, but she recognizes that if she had never met him, she could have been a great person probably. And that he essentially corrupted her and ruined her life. If no one knows you're a virgin, okay, well, that only works until wedding night. And the minute that the wedding night happens, if you married someone and they find out you're not a virgin. But again, how would they find out? She doesn't bleed. Yeah, but not, well, one, not everyone bleeds. Two, if she's never, if it's been a long time, she could bleed anyways. And three, how open were the Puritans being about talking about their women bleeding? They would be open if they needed to in order to kill her. I know it seems kind of silly, but yeah, no. Um, and yeah, not everyone bleeds, absolutely. And those people died, not because they weren't virgins, but because they didn't bleed. But because they didn't bleed, that meant to them back then, they don't have science like we do today. I mean, they had science, but for them, it was... No, this happens every time. So if you don't bleed, you're obviously a, the spawn of Satan who has had sex with someone else. So Yikes. you gotta die. Again, Puritans are trash. Religion is trash. So all, all around. <laughs> so she had the, yeah. So she had these, none of the things that that were her options were essentially good. 
the only other option that I could see you trying to argue here is, yeah, sure, kill him in some different way and not kill yourself. But then again, trying to get away with it. And then you have to be on the run for the rest of your life as a murderer. And does she get to live the life that she wants to in 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 theory if she's trying to redeem herself in that way does she get to live that life even that she's trying to win for herself Fair. if she has to be a murderer and be on the run in that regard um and then of course if she's caught after murdering then she dies anyway it's obviously a catch-22 it's a tragedy all around there's no there's no happy answer here yeah mess all right So this week I chose a movie that is probably not considered a B-movie. It was very well received when it first came out, but is definitely a movie that many people probably have forgotten about just because it's been over 10 years and it wasn't like, it's not a Titanic or a Gone with the Wind. Like it's not a thing that people are continually talking about for years and years to come. Um, But I watched the 2009 rom-com confessions of a shopaholic nice based on a book yes based on a book so confessions of a shopaholic follows rebecca bloomwood played by ela fisher and if you don't know who ela fisher is you probably do you just don't recognize her name um she looks a lot like amy adams to the Mm -hmm. point where they used to get confused all of the time before amy adams like broke the fuck out of the mold and became an Oscar-winning actress. Like her and Ela Fisher were interchangeable essentially. Um, But Ela Fisher, the first time I saw her that I can remember is in Wedding Crashers. She was the stage five clinger. Um, She is also Sasha Baron Cohen's wife. Um, Mm -hmm. So she's hilariously funny. She was with for a while, right? Huh? I I think she was with David Duchovny for a while maybe i don't know she's been with uh with sasha baron cohen for a really long time they've like yeah yeah, they've got kids together um she's hilarious she has really good comedic timing confessions of a shopaholic is basically exactly what it sounds like it (laughs) is uh rebecca bloomwood is a new york city journalist she works for a small magazine and she has an addiction to shopping of course like many people in fucking new york city so she considers herself a fashionista she's always got to have like the the newest skirts the newest dresses the newest shoes all these different things she's you know she prides herself on finding things like at 50 percent off or whatever like she does try to find the deals but even a deal like 50% off on a $1,200 dress is still a $600 dress. For sure. And given her job at a lesser known magazine, you know, she has stacked up an intense amount of credit card debt. She has $16,000 worth of credit card debt. And her and her best friend played by Kristen Ritter work out ways to kind of get around it. Kristen Ritter is trying to make Rebecca realize that she does have a problem with shopping. She needs to go see some help. And Kristen Ritter, of course, is her roommate, her best friends and roommates. That makes sense. And 
owns the apartment or her parents own the apartment that they live in. So every time Rebecca gets in this situation, which it seems has happened multiple times, Kristen Ritter is kind of like, don't worry about this month's rent. We will focus all of your money that would have gone towards rent towards paying down your bills a bit. In all of this opening um, information about the horrible debt that she is in and all these different things, we find out that she has the all city debt collectors after her for a total of like $9,400 or something like that. And there's a specific debt collector that is after her named Derek Smith, who has been calling and calling and calling. And he's always fucking calling her because she keeps mm-hmm. avoiding them and coming up with just outlandish excuses as to why she can't pay. Like, oh, yeah. my grandma's in the hospital. My aunt died in a skydiving accident. I broke my foot. I've got the flu. It's just like <laughs> absurd reasons to avoid paying your bills. Yeah. <laughs> we all know this is just like, it ain't gonna cut it. It's very clear from the beginning, this shit ain't gonna cut it. She's trying to turn her life around, but every time she walks by a store, which in New York is literally everywhere, Mm -hmm. every time she walks past a high fashion store, the mannequins come to life, kind of entice her to buy whatever it is that they have on. Right. Kind of, they don't talk, but they move and motion like, hey, look at this fit that I'm wearing. Like, come check it out. Check out this beautiful purse I'm holding. Like, you definitely need this purse. It would look great on you. And she gives in more often than not to this allure of new things. She's at work one day and she has to take an extra long lunch because she has an interview at her dream job which is to write for the fashion magazine, Alette. Now, Alette is very much, it's like Vogue almost, the fashion magazine in this world. And she has like, okay, I've been a journalist for a while. I've been working for magazines. Like clearly I'm, I've got the fashion going on. Like I know what the fuck I'm talking about. Alette is the job, like let's fucking go. So she rolls up to the building and gets to the security desk and meets the security guard and he's like oh you're here for that job well that job was filled in-house last week by this girl like she the new girl walks in or the girl who ended up getting that job walks in and um rebecca comments on her being like uh size zero legs for days or something like that she's just like this beautiful yeah beautiful girl And she gets real, she's like, fuck, well, that was my dream job. Like, what the hell am I going to do? And she kind of offhand mentions like Alette is her dream job to the security guy just in her frustration. And he's like, well, damn it. Okay, give me a second. And he kind of like messes with his computer and he sets her up with an interview at the financial magazine in the building because there it's like a corporation of magazines. Very much like Hearst Publications is currently with like Cosmopolitan and all these different, like they've got just a magazine for every flavor of the week, everything you could possibly like they have a magazine for. This is very much the same situation. So this building she's in also houses a financial magazine. She's like, well, 
sure, it'll be my foot in the door. Like I'll get in the building at least. And then the next time they have an opening at a let, I'll be able to like swoop in. Hey, I work at this financial magazine and she goes in, right? So she walks into this financial magazine and sits down with the boss. He's a younger guy. He's in his like thirties. She's trying to explain her qualifications for the job, but she has none. She is not a financial person at all. Clearly she's got 16 grand worth of debt. Like girl's fucked up. Um, But she's trying to kind of make herself enticing. She's and her resume of course is padded because she was going in for a fashion interview and now she has to try and skew it to like a financial interview. So she figures it out with Luke, the boss, entices him enough with her previous writings to convince him to give her a job. And then she goes back down to her regular job and finds out that that place is closing. Now all she's got is this financial job, so she's got to make it work. She shows up to her first day at the finance magazine and he asks for a thousand words on something like APRs and something, I don't know, fuck, I don't know, finance. So bullshit. Yeah. Some finance like terminology crap. And she's like, uh, okay. Got that right on that. Okay. I'll figure (laughs) it out. And, uh, so her and Suze, Kristen Ritter, they go to a bookstore and she's reading through like finance for dummies, like trying to learn what the fuck she's supposed to be writing about. So she writes her paper and she, or writes her article and she turns it in and he's like, what the fuck is this? Like, this looks like it came right out of finance for dummies. Like, what the hell? And he tries mm-hmm. to get her to understand, like, no, we want it from your viewpoint. We want your specific you know, ideas about this thing. And she's like, well, uh, uh, I don't, I don't really know. And he's like, fuck it, come with me. And he takes her to a conference, essentially a financial conference. Like some guy is giving like this big speech, this financier speech about these things. He's some well-to-do corporate garbage guy. Luke brings her in and they sit down and the guy's like up there talking about whatever garbage he needs to talk about. And Luke is feeding her information like he did this and he did this. And this is what his company has done in the last such and such long. And he convinces her, basically forces her to stand up in the middle of this room, like in the middle of this speech. But, you know, it's not actually question time, but in the middle of this speech, he has her stand up and he feeds her questions like, why did you give your shareholders a 27% raise? when such and such and such is happening um and basically she brings the entire thing to a halt because of these questions that he's feeding her because the ceo guy has no idea no good response to it is going to make him come out on top um so all the other finance people in the room are like fuck this girl knows what the fuck she's talking about Mm -hmm. so then they go back up to the office and Luke really makes her understand, no, I want to see this from, now that you kind of understand what I'm talking about, I want to see, hear this from your point of view. So she writes a thousand words about it and she relates everything to her current shopping conundrum that she's in. She relates these tech, really technical financial 
problems and terms to her shopping problem and how stores basically get you to sign up for loyalty cards and credit cards and all these things and really get you, make you feel like they're your friend and then turn their back on you the second it's time for, you know, fees or whatever, like, and just fuck you over. It's this beautiful piece and it's great. And she's like, okay, well, here's my piece. I hope you like it. He reads it. He's like, this is fucking great. Let's like, what do you want? What do you want to call it? What, what, what should be the title? We're going to give you a full page. And she's like, I don't really care what you call it. I just don't want my actual name on it. Like I want a pseudonym. <laughs> I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't want it to be Rebecca Bloom. Not, Please don't do that because my creditors will be at my doorstep. Honestly, it's not because of the creditors. She doesn't want her name on there because she doesn't want to be associated with it in fear that Alette will later not want her to work there because she's writing for finance. So she's like, all of her actual name will go towards like real fashion, like writings, but not, she doesn't want this finance piece to be I don't know. It credited to her essentially. She's nervous that it's going to fuck up her future chances with Alette. For her interview, she came in wearing this beautiful green scarf that she had won or that she had bought from a store on her way to the interview where she had bumped into Luke and he had pitched in, had handed her $20 to give her the greens, to get her the green scarf. It was like a whole fiasco at a hot dog cart. So she walks in to her interview with the green scarf and she's like, you know what? How about, or they decide together, how about the girl with the green scarf? That will be her, uh, her column title, essentially. Very, it's very sex in the city. This article explodes in popularity. Like it's not just a huge hit in the finance world. It's a huge hit everywhere because laymen like normal fucking folks can understand what the hell she's talking about and they're getting all sorts of fan mail from women being like i finally understand what all of these like letters and things mean because you've made it relatable to things that actually matter to me so luke's like cool we're gonna keep your success and momentum going we're gonna bring you to all these different events we're gonna talk you up And they end up going to a financial conference in Miami to kind of show her around and introduce her to all sorts of people because everyone's interested in the girl in the green with the green scarf. Like everyone wants to hear her take on certain things. And she's very upfront about it because she doesn't know who any of these financial bigwigs are. She's just like, like your shit sucks. Like you could fix it this way. And she meets with like the guy who runs the company owner of all of the magazines and he owns all sorts of other things she's talking to him she's like aren't you the guy who owns such and such banks and he's like yes that's me and she's like uh your window designs are garbage you need to change that it doesn't entice me it doesn't make me want to go to your bank you need to create some sort of incentive program that makes people want like you know half off of fees or what like you know no no late fees or no whatever fees for your bank that would entice people to go to your bank and his assistant or next in charge played by fred armison is just like uh what no this woman's crazy like don't listen to her 
we're like everything's fine just ignore the fact that she said that let's pretend she doesn't exist no one should ever talk <laughs> to you that way right he's very much like hyping yeah john lithgow I'm who is my god guy i'm so sorry i'm so sorry yeah john lithgow is the boss guy and john lithgow just like you know what you're fucking right like these are boring and nobody <laughs> like we haven't our numbers haven't gone up like right good point let's get on that and he blows fred armison's mind by agreeing with uh with her so at this conference there's going to be a ball in back in new york for the company of magazines or the greater company like they're having a huge company-wide ball and two representatives from each business i guess are going to be invited to this big like dinner party thing rebecca finds out about it she's like cool we need to fix the way that you look luke because you are not ready for a like black carpet or red carpet black tie affair like we need to go do something so she takes him shopping and she finds out in this shopping adventure that he does know all about the world of fashion because he grew up rich he's not john lithgow's son but he's like john lithgow's wife's son or something like that but he's like he has distanced himself from the name so that he could make himself his own name like he he could come up his own self but she finds out in this shopping adventure, he knows all about Gucci suits and all this other shit. So he like picks out what he wants. Yeah. And she's just like, bruh, you Why? are 100% yeah. my type. Mm-hmm. You know shopping? Like that's you, like yeah. we, we right here. Yeah. <laughs> so some sparks fly and then they go, they're still in Miami at this point and they go dancing. Ela Fisher is comedic hilarity. Like she's just, garbage dancing with a fan and he's putting up with it and it's just it's funny and hilarious they get back to the hotel after shopping and stuff the size zero legs for days girl pops out of the elevator and we find out that she is actually going to dinner with luke like they're gonna go out on a date so rebecca's like what the fuck okay cool like i gotta i gotta go like I got shit to do before we go to New York. Right. Tomorrow. I didn't even, I didn't even want to eat dinner. I fuck. Yeah. Have a good time. Yeah. She's like, okay, bye. <laughs> or right before she leaves, you know, he kind of breaks the news that he's going to this ball thing with the girl from Alette, not with her. And yeah. she's like, well, fuck. Okay. Bye. I got to go to New York. So she goes to New York. She still has massive credit card debt and all these different things. And she attempts to go to Shopaholics Anonymous. And when she goes, she's like talking about her problem and or about her love of shopping. In a, and she talks about it in a way where it gets all the other people excited right. and anxious to shop. Then she goes to see her parents um, to kind of ask them for some help, help paying down her debt. And finds out that they, who have been penny-pinching her entire life and not spending a goddamn dime, um, just blew their entire life savings on a RV because her dad has wanted to have an RV hit their whole life, basically. Wow. So now she's out of options and she's super-duper broke and she's writing yeah. about finance when she knows nothing about finance and trying to keep her debt a secret okay. from her current employers because 
they you would have- not appreciate her not knowing anything about finance. Derek Smith, of course, has been calling her nonstop and trying to find her, finds out her office number and has been calling her at the office. And the assistant in the office keeps answering the phone. Rebecca ends up telling a lie, claiming that Derek is her ex-boyfriend and he's stalking her. So that's a quick way to get (laughs) the office not to pay attention to him anymore, right? Brilliant. (laughs) Holy shit. Brilliant. (laughs) Days go by. She writes another article. She's continuing to kind of write her thing. Her best friend becomes engaged to her live-in boyfriend and it's super exciting they go wedding dress shopping they go find bridesmaids dress the bridesmaids dress is really expensive and the same day that she ends up buying the bridesmaids dress she also has to buy a dress for a tv interview that she's going to do being the girl in the green scarf the head of alette magazine shows up at her parents house to take her shopping for this dress like she was told by the head of the company you need to go take that she's going to be on tv she needs to look her best you are the head of the fashion magazine go take her so the head of alette size zero legs for days girl and rebecca all go shopping together the head of alette picks out this like gray dress and this like what it's like bland as fuck but their whole office is just like everyone's in black and white it is very much devil wears prada here guys like mm-hmm. where high fashion is just all black and white Ela fisher being the beautiful redhead that she is she's like um i was kind of thinking this and she picks out this like beautiful roughly purple dress and this other like this beautiful white jacket to go on top of it and the girl from Millette's like, you know what? That's a pretty good idea. Go get changed in it. Show me. Let's see what you got. So she goes to get changed and her phone rings in her purse and size zero long legs answers it. And it's of course, Derek Smith. And she's like, oh, the fuck? Uh, yeah, she's busy at the moment, but she'll be at such and such place at such and such time. She's going to be on TV at this thing. Click. She gets this beautiful dress for this beautiful purple dress to go on TV with. And she has her bridesmaids dress. She's carrying them with her. And her friend says, you need to go to a Shopaholics Anonymous meeting. So she goes to her Shopaholics Anonymous meeting and she meets up with this woman who's also going to the Shopaholics Anonymous meeting who parks right outside and is like, hey, can I put these bags in your trunk like I can't have them at this meeting or I can't have them at this meeting like that would look really bad and -hmm. she's like oh yeah sure and then she walks in and the girl whose trunk she put them in ends up being the new leader for Shopaholics Anonymous and the lady's like I have a new way of doing things everybody follow me and they go to her car they grab out the bags and then they go to like a thrift store and they force her to get rid of her dresses that she just bought they finish the alcohol or the shopaholics anonymous meeting and she runs back to the thrift store and says i need those dresses back i have to do this i have to like i cannot give up these dresses right and they say no exchanges no returns blah, blah 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 and she's like fuck it i'll buy them how much do you want for them and they're like 
120 bucks or 110 bucks. And she's like, well, I don't have that much money right now. Can I get one and then save the next one? And I'll come back in a little bit and get the second one. And she's like, no layaways and blah, blah, blah. Which one do you want for the interview or for the TV interview is $90. And this one, the bridesmaid's dress is 20. It's a hideous bridesmaid dress. She pays for a dress and runs out. And we don't know which one she paid for. Then we see her on TV in the purple dress. So she left left the bridesmaid's dress at the thrift shop. She goes to this interview and Luke is also in this interview because he's like the editor of this finance magazine. So they're chit-chatting with whoever the person is. And then they open it up for questions. And Derek Smith stands up in the audience and starts asking her questions like, how can you give advice on financing when you have shit tons of debt, essentially, and blows her whole story up, like does not give a fuck. And she just fucking loses it, understandably so, and starts crying, you know, has to explain to Luke that she's been lying to him and has to, you know, all these different things. She's just had the worst fucking day, right? on on television by the way so it's not like she can just like pretend that this didn't happen everyone knows yeah so she goes to go home to see rebecca who has been watching this on who watched this on tv of course an interview with her best friend on tv like why wouldn't you watch it she gets home and rebecca's just destroyed and trying to kind of explain to her what happened and then a homeless woman walks past them wearing the bridesmaid's dress Jules loses it and is like basically go fuck yourself and Rebecca has to leave so Rebecca ends up going home with her family she loses her essentially loses her job um she's lost Luke who has finally started to have feelings for her at this point her best friend is done with her she has tons of fucking debt and she has no way she doesn't have a job anymore to pay for it she's fucking lost so she's living at home with her parents trying to figure it out and her parents her dad's basically like okay well if i sell the rv that'll get you thirteen thousand dollars and blah 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 and she's trying to figure she's like no you can't do that i won't let you do that i have to figure out a way to do it myself and she comes up with a plan she enlists the help of all of these shopaholics anonymous people she goes and she has set up a clearance sale of all of her fucking couture clothes so she set it up very much like all of these crazy pop-up sales happen in manhattan has all of her shopaholics anonymous friends help with it or she sends the email with the invite to it to the security guard from the magazines that like helped her out and he's like oh shit really the girl with the green scarf is having a fucking sale forward to the whole company and everyone is like holy shit this is gonna be great so at her sale thing it's of course like every other sale we've seen in the movie where there's just hundreds of fucking people trying to get into this tiny room fighting over you know Manolo Blahnik shoes and Gucci pants and all sorts of different things like that she ends up selling nearly her entire wardrobe, all of the things that she doesn't use, doesn't need, all the expensive clothes that just are worthless now. Um, And then at the end of it, she has an auction for her most prized pieces. 
And the last item to be auctioned is her green scarf. And there's a battle between two girls um, trying to get this green scarf. And it goes up and up and up. And eventually it sells for like $400 or something. At the end of the thing, they're like counting the money. And she scrapes by, she's got like 16000 like 500 or something. It's like just barely over the amount that right. she needs. Um, and she's like, hell yeah, that's all I wanted. Like, finally, I may not have a career and I may not have a guy, but I'm finally out of fucking debt. Like, let's go. The next scene is Derek Smith getting off an elevator in his office and he is walking in his office and everyone in his office is staring at him creepily like as he is walking through (laughs) through this office building through this office room and everyone just staring he's like the fuck is wrong he's like looking at him like feeling his face like is there shit on my face like what's going on and everyone's just staring at him and then he opens his office door and rebecca bloom is sitting in his office chair surrounded by jars of pennies amazing and she's basically like you came for me and my job and ruined my career and ruined all of my shit here you go here's 16,412 or whatever the number was and then she hands him a quarter because it was also and a quarter she hands him a quarter and says have a nice day and just fucking walks away like yeah that is exactly how you should fucking pay to fucking collectors. <laughs> That's amazing. Oh my God. Yeah. He threw her career in the fucking toilet so he could go fuck right. himself. Like she leaves the building and she's walking home and she's passing, you know, these uh, window features for these different brands that she has always loved. And the mannequins, of course, are moving again, trying to convince her hey, come in. You need this purse. You need these pants. Like, hey, come over here. And she's just like looking at them like, nah, I don't need it. And she walks past a couple and she's like, nah, I don't need it. And then the mannequins start clapping for her. Like, yes, girl. Yes, you fucking did it. (laughs) And she's super excited. And then she bumps into Luke. While all of this has been happening, when her career went sideways, his career also went sideways because he was backing her she worked at a financial magazine and was in hella debt and it's just a fucking problem. Yeah. So in all of this, rather than just taking the easy route, because the guy who runs the company, John Lithgow was like, you know, I don't want you working for this financial magazine anymore, but I think you have potential. You, sh- you know, we'll start a new magazine just for you and you can have whatever you want in it. And he's like, you know what? thanks, but no thanks. And then he goes to the bank and he ends up getting out a loan to start his own shit all by himself. Like he doesn't need, he doesn't need John Lithgow in the company anymore. He started his own communications company called Brandon Communications. So, and he's like, I need a new writer. I'm starting my own magazine. I'm doing all these things. And it would be really interesting to get the viewpoint of someone who has been basically fucked over by consumerism and he doesn't say that but yeah in a nicer way like you know it would be great to get you on staff and she's like you know um I'm really trying to get away from you know fashion and all of that or like trying to break myself away and he's like yeah of course it wouldn't be anything like that you'd be writing about your previous experiences and she's like yeah sure why not 
And he's like, you know, I really think you need something to complete your outfit. And he pulls out the green scarf. And she's like, it was you? You were one of the bidders? And he's like, I was both of them? Oh. Um. So he had paid those women to go to the auction just so he could get the green scarf for this big romantic gesture that he's been planning forever, I guess, because he realized yeah. he's in love with her. And then they kiss and it's the end of the movie. And then there's like a, there's a talk over during the credits where she kind of discusses what happened after that and how they kept going. And her new column is now called Confessions of a Shopaholic. It's very Sex in the City-esque where she's right. talking about, you know, her experiences with shopping in the city and how it fucked over her life. It's the same right. thing. It's Sex in the City, but about shopping instead of sex so this movie not a b movie it did well in the box office when it came out it made over a hundred million dollars but okay yeah but just is kind of has been forgotten it's been 12 years now at this point and i never hear anybody talking about it especially on the list of like rom-coms to go watch um and honestly i understand why because the romantic plot in this movie flatline for most of it and there's like and it doesn't make sense like the way that they come together when they actually do come together at both points start or in the middle of the movie and at the end doesn't make any sense like as I was watching it the first time that they kind of have like romantic feelings for each other the first time they kiss it's just really out of place and awkward like they were having a really serious conversation about something else and then he's like, oh, but I don't like her. I like you. And then they kiss. And then it's just like, what? Random. What the fuck? <laughs> like, like they had been building to it, kind of, in their friendship relationship. The it. it just yeah. jumped way too hard. And like the romantic side of this movie does like did nothing for it, honestly. This is a comedy about everything. Oh, at the end of the movie, I forgot to mention, at the end of the movie, she ends up getting her bridesmaid's dress back and rolls up to Jules's wedding, like at the wedding, right before Jules is about to go in and helps fix her train and apologizes to Jules and they hug it out. And yeah. Yeah. So that is Confessions of a Shopaholic. Uh, I think it is, it deserves a B. Like I would not give this movie an A. It is not top tier. But it does have very funny parts. And the way that they deal with her, like her debt and her addiction to shopping and the the way the mannequins come alive to kind of entice her to like, hey, come buy this was fucking like innovative as shit. Fucking great. And honestly, all finance magazines should have a column similar to this to help normal fucking people avoid insane amounts of debt especially to young people who have no idea about credit cards and interest rates all right seven word synopses that was literally exactly what i was writing down yeah okay hope leslie love and morality doesn't care about race i mean yes but like two white folks ended up together at the end of this story oh for sure but by choice i mean true 
See, your your seven words would work better if he had ended up with Majawiska. Yeah. Majawiska. Faith and Oneko are together. And Faith goes back. True. But also Faith was taken when she was 10 or yeah. younger than 10. She was like yeah. seven or some shit. And it's like Stockholm syndrome almost. I mean, she was never mistreated. No. I don't know. That's tricky. It's tricky. Nice. <laughs> okay. Mine is kind of similar. Puritans were garbage. Faith doesn't equal morality. There you go. Yeah. We're still fighting that battle. The whole thing about this is it bothers me so much that critics argue about any that at any point that they ever did or ever continue to do argue about whether or not Catherine Maria Sedgwick was trying to reinforce racial barriers rather than actually break them apart because she could not have been more fucking heavy handed here. She names the sisters Faith and Hope. Yeah. <laughs> and Faith goes off with the Native Americans at the end, not yeah. with the Puritans. Yeah. Not with the Native Americans. Mary is a Native American. There's very obvious allegorical implications here and the main character is hope and hope is the person that perseveres that everyone is trying to take down that the puritans are constantly trying to suppress and yet she wins out in the end catherine maria sedgwick could not have been clearer potentially maybe she could have been clearer if she didn't write a novel and instead just flat out wrote an essay and was like you guys are shit all right for confessions of a shopaholic credit and financial institutions are scams for capitalists yep (laughs) okay for confessions of a shopaholic pay your bills and seek addiction help yes it's very very personally responsible even if we weren't dealing with regular money like if this was back in the puritan days of your story like oh yeah it was literally debt for a debt you stole my kids i'm stealing your kids like let's fucking go (laughs) so yeah (laughs) pay your debts and if you if someone around you someone who's close to you feels that you may have an addiction you probably have a fucking addiction and you need to go seek help Right. Because it's not always easy for you to be to see it. But when it's someone from it's someone telling you this from an outside perspective. You're not the best judge of your own personal shortcomings, literally ever. Yeah. So seek help if you can. There are 12 step programs for literally everything. Uh so that has been Hope Leslie and Confessions of a Shopaholic. Uh, if you are have any questions, if you have any questions or concerns or comments or even ideas about what we should be doing next, you can tweet us at Allentown Pod. We have an email address at AllentownPresents at gmail.com. And we have a Facebook at Allentown Presents. You can find us on any of those social medias and we will Woo-hoo. gladly chat with you about whatever you want. Um, a huge shout out to our cover artist that would be Susan Dorda for our beautiful cover art thank you so much Susan Dorda you can check out her work at susandorda.com s-u-s-a-n-d-o-r-t-a.com 
oh man, how do I do that? Um, <laughs> and yeah, the best way to, the best way to uh, support us is to like us and subscribe us on whatever podcast platform that you listen to and get your podcasts, whether it's Apple podcasts or Spotify or anything of the sort. And uh, yeah, uh, doing so and uh, leaving a review and a rating 1000% helps um, us with the, the algorithms of uh, the computers, letting them know that people like listening to us and suggesting us to others for their interests um, and things like of that nature. Yeah, so thank you so much for listening and we'll catch you again next time. Bye. Literally. Bye.